Hey, Megan. What's up, Tim? The HBO miniseries Chernobyl is such a big hit with critics and fans and audiences alike. Do you think it's only a matter of time before we get a season of Survivor filmed on location on Three Mile Island? Tim, I think you're being super critical. <laughs> Welcome to another episode of the Super Critical Podcast, where we delve into the fun and oftentimes nonsensical way pop culture portrays nuclear weapons. My name is Tim Westmeyer, someone who studies nuclear weapons and works on nuclear security and nonproliferation for a living. My usual podcast host, Gabe, is not able to join us today because he's busy flying sorties in his airplane, dropping boron and sand. You know, everybody has to have a hobby. Uh, so he'll, don't worry about him, though. He'll be back uh, on our next podcast episode. But fortunately, I am joined in the podcast studio here with two special co-hosts. First, Megan McCall, a policy analyst and special assistant to the president at the Plowshares Fund and the excellent organizer of the Plowshares podcast called Press the Button, which is terrific. Megan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Excellent. Jeff Wilson, hey, how did you get here? Policy analyst at the Center for Arms Control and Nonproliferation. Uh, you worked your way through the Soviet bureaucracy to get on this podcast since you said you enjoyed the show so much. But you know what? Welcome back. You may remember Jeff from the episode we recently did on Starship Troopers. You know, it's all about being a party man. Uh, I really <laughs> enjoy working from the inside out and uh, happy to be here. Well, speaking of party, uh, we're going to do this podcast while drinking some Moscow Mules because we are going to talk about the HBO five-part miniseries Chernobyl, which is a dramatization of the events around the massive accident at the number four reactor at the Chernobyl nuclear power plant in the early morning of April 24th, 1986. Uh, for me, this was, let's see, two years after I was born. Uh, I wasn't tracking this particular story, uh, but it has been certainly something you've been following and looking at for a while now. But uh, it was super interesting to watch the show because we learned about the, the causes of the nuclear accident, the response effort by the USSR leadership and scientific community. We learned about the heroes on the ground who sacrificed their lives to limit the damage, as well as the lies, which is really the thematic point of the show, the lies that created this situation uh, where this tragedy could be done in the first place. Um, but before we get into it, you know, Jeff and Megan, what were your overall reactions to the show? Kind of why did this seem like it appealed to you uh, other than just being a nuke nerd? Megan, you are also, your background is in, you know, Russian studies and mm -hmm. things. What was your overall impression of this show? Yeah, I was actually really excited to learn that HBO is going to make a series on Chernobyl. Um, did you learn pretty early on? I only knew this when I saw the trailer, and I was very excited by it. I learned about it probably when the first article came out about it. I don't know when that was earlier this year, like at the beginning of the year. Do you have a Google alert for Chernobyl? Maybe. <laughs> and like anything like nuclear accident related, just because I find joy in tragedy. It was just really interesting how the show was portrayed, and I really enjoyed seeing something based in Russia or the Soviet Union at the time. Mm -hmm. Since I've lived there before, it's kind of nostalgic for me. And it was really impressive the way that the writers and producers designed the show to highlight the fact that there was so much human error, but it was also kind of the pride and nationalism 
of the Soviet uni- Union. Mm-hmm. So nuclear power was was really promoted within the Soviet Union as the panacea for domestic foreign policy problems. Uh, it was the thing that would bring about uh, true communism, like the utopia yeah. state that the government uh, had promised, the party had promised that will eventually right just get there. Uh, and of course, I'm saying this to someone who's a Russian studies person. I, I remember this from maybe undergrad, but that's, is that, you know, essentially true? Like, what is true communism if you were to bring it about? Yeah, having the biggest and best of everything, that's <laughs> part of it. And definitely the Soviet Union wanted to be the best. And they also saw that the U.S. was going for it. So they wanted to beat them to the punch mm-hmm. on everything, including nuclear energy. Nuclear energy, nuclear airplanes, cars, ships, Everything. trains, homes, too yep. cheap to meter. Like, exactly. That was a reality for them, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I think it, it uh, in the book that all three of us have been reading that we're going to talk about later, they, they say that uh, Khrushchev, this was part of Khrushchev's plan for the, the, utop- the communist utopia by 2020. <laughs> right? It was part of the 2020 plan yeah. hey, to bring they, about true they communism. Still a, they still have a year. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, it's going to happen. <laughs> Um, Yeah, and uh, I think the last thing to kind of just frame all of our discussion today, you know, when we hear the word Chernobyl, we think of a disaster. You know, even two-year-old me would have heard the word Chernobyl uh, and would associate that with with a tragedy. But the people at the time, uh, before the accident occurred, Chernobyl was uh, the greatest place to to go to. If you were Mm -hmm. a nuclear engineer, that was the place to go to. It was the largest nuclear power reactor on a commercial scale. It was a beautiful place. They built this city. Pripyat. Thank you. It's like an Adamsburg, you know. Oh, Atomsky Gorod. Yeah, Yeah. there you go. Uh, And it was uh, meant to, what, for 50,000 people? Mm -hmm. And it was considered, like, the best place. It had food was stocked there. There were beautiful rose bushes everywhere. It was luxurious. It really was. It was the place to go to, really, until an RBMK reactor exploded. Yeah. Jeff, what was your first overall impression before we finally start to get into this? Like, what was the... What did you bring into it? Uh, Because you finished the show pretty recently, so it's pretty fresh in your mind. What, what, What are you feeling? Uh, this was a hundred percent the most compelling television that I've seen in a long time, and I like you're talking about. I remember when that first trailer came out, and it's the siren, right? And like it'd be like, oh my god, this is terrifying. What is like? Yeah. And I think that that's the reaction that a lot of people have had, right? Like nuclear power, like nuclear weapons, is something that modern society sort of takes for granted, mm-hmm. unless you're very keyed into parts of the environmental policy groups or nuclear weapons policy, mm-hmm. like we are. Mm-hmm. Most Americans and, and, you know, most citizens of the world don't really think about these issues day to day. And I think that Chernobyl, uh, as sort of an analogy, the really, really important thing about it is that it's this incredible story, this allegory of what happens when complex systems fail, Mm -hmm. right? You have this incredibly complex system, and unfortunately, it's in the hands of men to make sure that it runs perfectly. And just like everything else that mankind touches, it's going to inevitably fail when left to mismanagement in our own devices. And it leads to a significant cost in lives, right? And it's this really compelling really telling story and uh, like from a story point i love the way that it's carried out i think they did a great job with it yeah and fortunately the people that this was in, in the hands of did a really good job not only with thematically the types of stories they were telling and the pacing of everything but the the visuals the costumes uh everything except as megan will mention to us the accents and things oh, like that which i i yeah. think it's going to be fine but 
Let, let's save a little bit of that for later when we do what I call the parking lot discussion where we, we sit in our cars after, and uh, our, our cars that stopped working because of the EMP. Um, <laughs> and we're, and we're going to have a conversation about this. But, you know, the people that did this really well, you know, it's written and produced by Craig Mazin. Previous credits, you know, they include the Hangover movie sequels, but he really kicks butt uh, in this particular program. Those yeah. are classic works of our generation, yeah. Tim. I don't they know are. what you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, but yeah. it's also weird because I wouldn't think that the guy who did the Hangover... would <laughs> have some serious drama yeah. chops. Yeah. I love it. Well, as someone who obsesses quite a lot with the portrayal of nuclear things in popular culture, you can really hear from the writing and the interviews that he's done from watching the show and also amazing companion podcasts, just called the Chernobyl podcast that he uh, did with John Siegel from NPR. You can really understand the care that was put into it. And I, I appreciate it because a lot of times that is not the care that you get put into this. Yeah. He was writing this for a long time. He said he started writing the script sometime in 2015. Right. It became more relevant, as we'll talk about later, in the 2016 election year. But he also visited um, Pripyat mm-hmm. uh, and went to the, the, the exclusion zone and, and some other things to kind of get a, a sense of how things were you know, today. So all of this put together, I, I'm, I'm amazed of how it worked out. And a lot of people agree, too. Rotten Tomatoes, uh, you know, they also do TV. And critics there, 95% of them have indicated this as a good product, which is a pretty good rating. And even better with audiences, 98% uh, said that this was pretty good. Now, now, now Megan, who who doesn't like this show? Before we get into it, who, who maybe is the people that are this 5% of, of critics? I feel like it's uh, pretty obvious, but the Russian state media hmm. obviously does not like it. I was reading up on some of the commentary that Russian state media journalists have made. And one of them that stuck with me was the fact that they think that America is creating this as propaganda to brainwash the younger generations in America. And it's about something that happened in Ukraine. Like like, talk about like this growing Russian overreach, right? Russia wants to claim credit even over the places where bad things happen. Yeah. At some point they want that back. I, I've seen that they're going to do a version of this on their own. Yeah. I mean, they on their own, like a Russian-made version. Um, and they already have several billion dollars poured into this. Hmm. But I haven't heard anything more about what they're planning. I think the only thing that I've seen is that they're going to have a plot where it was a CIA sabotage Yeah, Western operation. spies. Well, yeah, yeah, and they're saying that, you know, they think that there were CIA agents on the ground there. But obviously, you can't prove that because it's the CIA. Mm-hmm. So the CIA was the reasons why we had graphite-tipped boron control rods. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. So real quick, nuclear power 101. This is kind of a little bit important. I, it's been a long time since I took my nuclear reactor course with uh, former president of the Federation of American Scientists, Charles Ferguson, when I was when I was in grad school. I'm name dropping here, uh, but only because it was an amazing class. It's been a while since I've done that, so I had to look a lot of this up. So please, guys and gals, correct me if I'm wrong on this. You know, the show does a really good job, I think, of explaining what nuclear power is and how it works. They do this through having characters who are party people coming in and and literally forcing by, like, the barrel of a gun or I will throw you out of this helicopter if you don't describe to me what nuclear power is. So they do a pretty good job of this. But so nuclear power for people who maybe are interested in nuclear weapons but don't track the, the power side you know, through nuclear fission, the same process by releases energy. If you do it a lot, really quickly, 
a nuclear weapon, it uses the atom of uranium, which is a, a very heavy element that's very unstable. If you just hit it right with a neutron, uh, it will break apart, it will release other neutrons, and it will release energy, you know, through E equals MC squared. You, you break up this mass a little bit, and it releases a ton of energy, way more than you possibly could think. And when you do that, and if you do that just right, if you control it so it's not doing too crazy, um, you know, not too much or too little, you can create not a super critical reaction, which is the name <laughs> of the podcast, okay? uh, but you'll do a critical reaction, a very sustained, like, one-to-one -one ratio of breaking apart of a uranium atom another neutron, you do it again and again, and what you get is you get heat. And what can you do with heat? You can steam water. You can boil water, make it into steam, shoot that steam down a pipe, turn a, you know, the simplest thing. Run a turbine. Turns yeah. a turbine, yeah. generates electricity. It's the same thing if you were to have a bunch of hamsters in a wheel, <laughs> turning, 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 but instead of a hamster, it's a steam. Uh, you want it hot enough for steam, but not hot enough to melt the uranium fuel. That's no good. That's how you get a meltdown. Uh, but I think the core thing is, is that to know is that you can, the same process that you use to make uranium fuel for a reactor is the exact same process, more or less, to produce weapons grade uraniums. Most elements of uranium, or what? It's uranium 238, mm -hmm. that particular isotope of uranium. The one that you want for bombs is 235, but also the one you want for power is 235. And if you get it, and fortunately, this is one of the great uh, fortunate, you know, knock on wood things for the universe is that most of the uranium out there is 238. It's like vast majority. What is it like 99 percent? Mm -hmm. So when you have some uranium ore and you want to, it was called enriching it by getting a higher percentage of the good stuff, the 235, you only need to get to about three to five percent power reactor and then you'll get some heat. If you get it up to 70, 80, 90, that's the kind of stuff you need for a nuclear bomb. Very close process. I think it's one of the mention because... <laughs> People that build and enrich their own uranium can also potentially at some point build nuclear weapons. Uh, that's why we have the International Atomic Energy Agency to be able to do uh, safeguards to prevent that. But I've been talking enough about this, Jeff. I just think that there's an important thing here that as complex as that description of how nuclear power works, in practice, it is even more complex. Mm -hmm. But I think it demonstrates really well that there is this balance that is necessary. That's what it's all about. Very right? tricky balance. Yeah, you have to keep it hot but not so hot that it melts everything around it and explodes, right. right? That is the principal challenge that we're going to see some of these young men go through here in this show and that they were working with a stacked deck the whole yeah. time too. This thing was, was already unstable and destined to fail and they were just doing their best with the information that they had at the time, just trying to keep the thing balanced. That's like the crux of the entire situation. Yep, and the way in, in the real world you keep these things balanced is you need uh, something to moderate the reactions because neutrons, they are not cooperative. They are super, most neutrons, the great percentage of them are, are too fast. Mm -hmm. They won't actually end up hitting. I don't know how the science of this works, but it's some sort of, if, if they're moving too fast, they actually can't break apart another atom of uranium. Right. You need to slow them down. And the way to slow them down, you need a moderator. Uh, most Western reactors use water because that slows down the neutrons to the point where they can actually hit and break apart mm -hmm. another uranium element. But what the, the Russians use uh, at the time, the RBMK reactor uses graphite. And so, you know, it's a, it's a mineral. They form it so that also slows things down. Um, and then you also need something to cool the reactor so it doesn't get too hot. Most of the time that's water. And then you also need something which is a, a control system, something that absorbs neutrons. So if it's starting to get too reactive, you can slow it down. If it's not being reactive enough, you can uh, take those elements away right. and, and let it go. That's enough science talk. Let's get into the actual show itself because there's quite a lot here to talk about. 
so spoiler warning, if you haven't watched the five episodes uh, of this show, it's available right now on HBO. If you have Hulu and you have an HBO account, you can also get it that way. Oh, and yeah. it's also on Sky, which I believe is a British yes. station. Yes. Yep. It's like a news channel, I think. It's another network. It's oh, it's sort of like BBC. Like yeah. yeah. Right. So if you, you have any of those uh, access, uh, borrow your, your parents' HBO account, your hey. friend's HBO account, uh, and then watch the show. Because we're going to spoil as much oh, as we can. Uh, and also, in order to avoid this being a five-hour podcast or more. Or longer, yep. Uh, we're going to try to just hit the big elements. Of course, we're going to go episode by episode so it's easier for you all as a listener to kind of track where we are in the story. Uh, but we're going to focus on some key elements. We're going to talk about the accident, the immediate reaction and cover-up, how the characters are affected by the accident and what they do to try to stop the fire, what they what they call liquidate the problem the, in the aftermath, both for the people, the reactor, and then Europe. And, you know, this wouldn't be our own podcast if we didn't talk about nuclear weapons. So we'll talk about how all of this also is very intermixed between uh, nuclear power, nuclear weapons, and the danger of nuclear war uh, during the Cold War. Uh, So, Megan, why don't you start us off? What is episode one called? And how are we introduced to, I guess we're going to call him, maybe not the hero of the story, but the protagonist of the story. The protagonist, yeah. So his name is Valery Legasov, or, you know, with an English or American accent. Larry Legasso. Um, <laughs> beautiful. Oh, thank you. But this episode has the title of the time that the reactor went critical and exploded. Um, and also, once you start watching the episode, you learn that you're paying attention to the clock. Mm-hmm. And I actually had to watch this a second time. And I was like, oh, that makes so much sense. But he ends up hanging himself. At that exact time. Mm. And before that, though, he, you know, he records himself talking on some tapes and he says things like, what is the cost of lies? What is the cost of lies? It's not that we'll mistake them for the truth. The real danger is that if we hear enough lies, then we no longer recognize the truth at all. What can we do then? What else is left but to abandon even the hope of truth and content ourselves instead? with stories. In these stories, it doesn't matter who the heroes are. All we want to know is who is to blame. And then something that I thought was very Soviet-like was that he hides hides the tapes, and you can see a man watching him, mm-hmm. which is very Soviet. Yeah, it's unclear if that was like someone he knew right. or if that was someone that was wanting to get like the tapes. picking up, yeah. I bet it was someone that was watching him. I think but so. Who, who knows? knows? And then feeds his cat again. Soviet, love it. (laughs) But it's just a very jarring way to start the show because especially if you don't know the story, you don't know what's going on. Like, who is this guy? What's happening? Why why did he hang himself? And we know from the trailer he's uh, someone who's going to be in the show quite a lot. Jared Harris, says the actor, uh, he's also, I think he plays King George in The Crown. Yeah, he's also on the AMC show The Terror. He Hmm. plays... uh, uh, the captain of the HMS Terror trying to force the Northwest Passage, which is another terrifying uh, disaster prospect. So. Hmm. All of a sudden, he's dead. Yeah. And then we go, what, two, two years, years earlier? Earlier, yeah. And I really liked this part because it, it shows kind of life in Pripyat when Chernobyl's just starting, and it actually is the night of the explosion. Mm-hmm. But we don't really see that until it happens, obviously. But we were introduced to this couple... And they're kind of enjoying life, and and we're seeing kind of just the quiet life of Pripyat. And then all of a sudden, 
there's this crazy explosion that they see and it actually is pretty beautiful. It's like a light. They kind of do the same trick in um, the Amazon show, um, The Man in the High Castle. Oh, yeah. I think it's in season two. They show like the same thing. It's like the main characters, while the war is happening, but before the, the Nazis have won, the same kind of thing. It's like an early morning. Hey, why are you in so late? And then the explosion happens off in the distance. It's a good. It's, it's really very effective. It is. Well, and then they feel this explosion, and they don't know what's happening. But then, in the episode, it cuts to this Russian texts saying, like, getting a, a call to the fire station. Mm -hmm. Then we jump to that couple again, and he's part of the fire squad. I think is what they call him. Vasily. Vasily, yeah. And his wife, uh, his pregnant wife. Yes. Ludmilla. Yeah. And then he's, he gets called away and they just think that it's a, a roof fire. They're not, they're not saying that it's anything mm -hmm. dangerous because either they don't know, which is very likely, or they don't want to say anything. It depends on what level mm -hmm. they're at. And then it cuts to the guys in the control room. Right. And there's dust coming down and everybody's shook up. And my favorite thing is the one guy, the these two guys are standing next to each other and Topdanov looks at Akimov and he says, we did everything right. Yeah. You know, and it's just shock on there. Everybody's clearly stunned. Right. Mm -hmm. And then immediately a guy comes running into the room and says, uh, I, I can't find Tuchenko, you know, and um, and he said, well, we need to get, and then it's just this chaos. We got to get water into the reactor. Someone's, yeah. someone's yelling, the reactor is gone. Yeah, yeah. The, and the turbine hall yeah. is on fire. I don't think it exists anymore. It exploded. Right. right. Priority. It exploded. We know Akimov will be cooling the reactor core. We shut it down, but the control rods are still like the... They're not all the way in. I disengage right. the clutch. I'll disconnect the servos from the standby console. You two, get the backup pumps running. We need water moving through the core. That is all that matters. There is no core. It exploded. The core exploded. He's in shock. Get him out of here. The lid is off. The stack is burning. I saw it. You're confused. RBMK reactor cores don't explode. Akimov. Sasha, don't worry. We did everything right. Something, something strange has happened. Do you taste metal? Dyatlov, the plant director, who I love, is not even a nuclear physicist here. Like, he's, he has no actual control in what is going on in day-to-day -day in the running of the plant. Mm -hmm. He's the party representative mm -hmm. for the plant. He, right? has, he has some, I mean, he's worked right. at some plants before. Right, right. He, he has he, a science background. He, right. here. He, yeah, he yeah. built nuclear right. submarines, right? He was a big wig in building nuclear submarines. But he actually has no role in actually running the plant. He's the party boss in charge of it. What, he, what is it in Midnight in Chernobyl? They, they describe it as it was if uh, an FAA oh. like regulator were to try to break into a cockpit of an airplane and try and to fly flying. the plane. Like yeah. that's the difference between his job and the senior right. nuclear plant engineer right. yes. who are the ones who turn the dials. Right. Yeah. And so and so what I love is is that he immediately goes, This man's in shock. Get him out of here. <laughs> yeah. You know, and he just he starts doing everything his way, even though all the evidence is saying that that's not what's happened. Right. And it took me a while to pick up on this, but I actually I rewatched the first episode a couple of times. There's a moment where he leaves the control room. He leaves the control room, he goes outside, and he actually looks out on the ground and he can see the graphite blocks everywhere. Mm. He knows. Yeah, he knows, he knows he knows that something catastrophic has happened, but he continues with this charade, right? And comes back and says, We gotta get more water into the reactor, you know, and yeah. just like keeps it's that it, this is the first instinct of that Soviet 
mindset. We just keep pushing ahead until someone else tells us to do something different. Yeah, and that's uh, the what, my favorite thing about the show is the running line of how can an RBMK reactor explode? Now, we don't know why that's even a, a, a concern now. You know, A lot of people may be watching this and thinking, yeah, the word nuclear explosion, that's the thing. Right. You have a nuclear thing, it's going to explode. Yeah. Um, but the people here, for some reason, are pretty adamant. And even the people who saw the reactor core gone or in shatters, they see the roof missing of the building. And they, even then, they're like, I don't know how this happened. There's no reason why this should explode. Everything that they've been told and how they've learned these things in their school and training, there's no reason it would ever explode. Uh, so the question is, is you know, constantly they ask the, to each other and to and will yell back, how can this be possible? How right. can a reactor, an RBMK reactor explode? Uh, I'm not going to uh, try to pronounce what RBMK stands for, uh, but it's essentially a Russian translate. Oh, well, it's translated into high power channel type reactor, um, but an RBMK 1000, which is the model reactor. So we talked earlier about what moderates the neutrons, what cools the the fuel from overheating. You know, this uses graphite and it's cooled by water. So it's a combination of those those two things. Uh, so it's pretty bad when you're looking outside and you see the graphite on the ground because it's supposed to be in the in, reactor. I mean, it is yeah. the reactor, Yep. Yeah. essentially. So it's very radioactive, well, too. And, yeah. I mean, for any of these reactor parts to have been exposed to the outside, for the roof of the building to have been blown off, means that oh, this, like, so much. Yeah, this, like, 10,000-ton steel and concrete plate, which is the reactor lid, which has yeah. some Russian woman's name. Uh, oh, Masha. Yeah, Masha. Which is my Russian name. Nice. <laughs> Would have had to have been thrown, like, like, like thousands and thousands of tons of steel and concrete having to be thrown into the air for anything like this to have happened. So people know that something catastrophic has happened, but they're unwilling to believe it, right? They're so, not accepting it. Yeah. I mean, there, there are lots of actually pretty good reasons why they wouldn't accept it because the, the building is so large. This, these reactors were built way larger than you would normally want to build them, but it was a, it was the idea, you put all your stuff into this one uh, reactor, you build it big, you, you get economies of scale, uh, and you can power, I think it was like the, the Chernobyl plant, the reactors, the four or so that were doing it, were powering half of the lights in Kiev, yep. yeah. like one of the largest cities, not just in Ukraine, but in the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, those distos, distos four, were running and doing so much work um, for all of this, so... Jeff, I think you have something, and I am going to then go into really quickly, like what the reactor looks like, because you talked about what it is to if it for it to have exploded and graphite to be outside. It's yeah, it's super impressive. Yeah. Sadly, about what happened. But sorry, you were going to interject. Well, well, no, no. So, so the the key part that you just brought up is how large these yeah. reactors are, right? They are so huge, and I, I love they call this the Soviet uh, obsession with gigantism, mm-hmm. right? You know, everything has to be the biggest and the best. But like you said, there's this economy of scale involved, right? They wanted to, using mass-produced, like, like material, wanted to produce as much uh, power as they could out of the least costly option. So they built these giant reactors. They were so big that they couldn't have containment housing around them cheaply, yeah. right? Which is what yeah. which is what American reactors have. So I love that that this is actually part of the failing of the reactor. It was so large that reactivity in one area of the core often had only a loose relationship 
to any other area that was going on. So you could have things be enormously hot in the center of the reactor, but all the sensors are on the outside of the reactor. Mm -hmm. So you have no idea what the temperature of the core actually is because it was so large. And this led to disaster in part, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, and, and also I'd like to add because of their obsession with gi this gigantism and wanting to be the best, they also built these things so cheaply that it wasn't well done. Mm -hmm. They didn't just have great builders for these things. And so it wasn't really trustworthy. All three of us in preparation for this have read this book called Midnight in Chernobyl. And one of my favorite parts of it is they're talking about building this reactor. And they say that they had to yes. add an extra stage. It's ca amazing. Called the pre-installation overhaul. Which is, upon delivery from the factory, each piece of new equipment, including transformers, turbines, switching gear, was stripped down to its last nut and bolt, checked for faults, repaired, and then reassembled according to the original specifications as it should have been in the first place. Only then could it be safely installed, and that was how wastefully duplicative everything in this system was. Which is very sad already because they were at the early stages of the the atomic program in, in Russia. A lot of their systems, they were trying to decide between different prototypes. Do they want to do a graphite moderated reactor or they want to do what is most the most common reactor, which is a light water reactor, where the water not only cools the system, but also moderates the reactor. Usually those things work out pretty well as long as you're able to keep water flowing through the system. Because the idea is, if the core is starting to overheat, what's going to happen to water? Well, it's going to turn to steam. If there's too much steam, there's not enough water in liquid form to moderate. Therefore, there's less of a reactivity happening. That cycle, as long as you keep water in the system, works really well because you need the water to cool everything going around. So it's like a, it's like a safety check. Now, it, it, mm -hmm. it has failed in the past for different reasons, but it's usually not... Uh, because of um, issues not related to like the water or the coolant systems and things like that. They had to decide between whether they go with the more Western style of a reactor or they go with the graphite reactor. There's, lo there's lots of reasons why they ended up doing that. Some of it is, as we'll talk about later, the roots of the graphite moderated reactor system is in the plutonium production for weapons of mass destruction. But also they already had these kind of things kind of pre-made and it was kind of more expensive to do a light water reactor, as Jeff mentioned, the containment system, a concrete structure around it in case there was an explosion so there wouldn't be leakages, all of these things. This is a quick description of what it is. Uh, it, it, the reactor is a tw it's 12 meters across and 7 meters high. It's huge. It has 1,700 tons of moderating graphite blocks that are stacked on top of each other in 2,488 separate columns. Each of these blocks is drilled from top to bottom with, you know, essentially a circular channel. And inside those channels are two things. One, 1,600 heat-resistant zirconium alloy pressure tubes. And inside those is the fuel, which is wrapped around. It's a metal assembly, and that's where you get the uranium fuel that are stacked. I think it's like, probably, I think these are pellets yeah. Yeah. Uh, that are put in together. You have basically, uh, yeah, so it's 190 tons of enriched uranium dioxide. Man, that's a lot. Uh, so that's all, this whole description is coming from the book we talked about, The Midnight in Chernobyl. And then the last little thing here is there were 211 boron carbine filled control rods that are about five meters long. And these are the things that you could be lowered or raised through the graphite system. And these... Uh, boron, what it does is it, it gobbles up neutrons. It basically it helps balance it. it. Exactly. If it's going too hot, you put the 
you put a, you put the control rod down. If it's too slow, you pull it up and there's more reactivity happening that's not being absorbed. And that's essentially how this reactor works. And there's also so much water being shot through the system uh, to cool everything together. And also the water will, to a smaller degree, moderate the reacting system. Yeah. And a couple things to add on that, just to give you even more awareness of how large these things are, it is 20 times the size of a Western reactor. And then I think it's really interesting that um, the metal circles that these rods are contained in, Mm -hmm. um, the plant staff name them piachok, which is a five copia piece, which is not a whole lot of money. Mm -hmm. And I just thought that was funny. It's like, well, maybe that's because of the poor quality of these pieces, Mm -hmm. but it probably isn't, but that's just me. So... Yeah, it's it's like having a a, a Western water moderated reactor we call like the penny. Exactly. Yeah. And the last little thing I want to mention here is is that how do we protect uh, with this huge structure? How do you protect the workers and the environment um, from what's happening inside the reactor, which is a lot of heat and a lot of reactivity? Well, the reactor core is surrounded by a number of things. It's surrounded by a tank filled with water, a steel jacket around the whole thing, sand because sand is actually a pretty effective. Uh, tool against, um, you know, if you're in a fallout bunker, if you layer a couple of things of sand and a few things of concrete or concrete filled with sand, that's better than nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, you fill it with sand, and then on the other side of that is a concrete vault more than eight stories high. You got more metal. You got some iron. You have something called, I didn't even know about this, serpentinite, mm-hmm. which is a neutron retarding material. And on top of this, you have what they call a biological shield. So it's got pebbles, rocks, more of this serpentinite, nitrogen gas, that whole thing weighs 2,000 tons. Then on top of that, you have 2,000 removable steel-clad concrete blocks that basically are the top of each of these control rods. Insane. Um, and those are what is the floor of the reactor hall. So you can stand on top of that. We see a scene in, I think, the fifth episode where these are bouncing up and down. Yeah. And when the reactor does finally explode, this entire structure, which we talked about 2,000 pounds yeah. on top of that, even more oh, and more. Tons, yeah. Tons, sorry, tons, ins- tons. This whole thing gets shot up through the air, through the building, and kind of then collapses back Imagine on Imagine how itself. much energy that is. <sighs> yeah, all of this exploded. It would be impressive if it wasn't sad for kind of the what right. ends up happening, right. which is you have the reactor plant workers. So now we're back on the show. So thank yeah. you, everybody, for listening through that. <laughs> it, I think you have to underscore that before you can kind of get into what, what the characters have to deal with. So the plant re- the plant reactor workers are trying to rush in to save their colleagues. They're, they're seeing some of their colleagues dead. There was one person who died immediately who either was vaporized or crushed. Right. But other people, they're finding either falling down or collapsing due to, to heat. or Their skin is melting. Pretty nasty stuff. Yeah. Um, and what does uh, Dyatlov tell them to go do? It tells one of the workers to go back. Oh, you just saw the reactor from the side. You have to go look down into it. Go into it. Go into where all the radiation is. Which is not a good thing right now. So Dyatlov tells Topanov and Asimov to go pump water by hand because all of their control systems are, are not working anymore. The buttons don't do anything. They tell them to go through radioactive water at this point to go turn manually to get water pumped into the core, which, again, is not helpful when there is no core. You're right. just basically pouring water onto uh, a fire that cannot be quenched. Right. 
Right. It is yeah. it is so hot and there is so much radiation that it's actually ionizing the air around it and you get that the the, the people go outside to see this beautiful glow that's shooting up into the heavens, right? Yeah. And it is so hot that it's actually turning the air around it into this glowing blue column. And um, people reported that it probably didn't go up like a straight line, but it certainly was visually in the show really interesting. Shocking, yeah. What do you think makes the colors? Oh. It's the fuel for sure. Oh, it's the fuel for sure. What do you know about it? My friend Yuri works at the power plant. He says it runs cold. No gas, no fire, just atoms. Yuri says the only thing is you can't walk right up to the fuel. If you do, a glass of vodka an hour for four hours. Isn't Yuri a plumber? At the nuclear power plant. <laughs> Oh, it is beautiful. Yeah. I first, at, at one point, I thought that that was called, what is it, the Cherenkov yeah. effect, which is what you see if you see a reactor working in water because right. it distorts it the... It has that glow. Kind of bluish glow. I've yeah. seen that when I visited the University of Maryland research reactor as part of a work tour. It was pretty cool. Um, uh, I've seen that reactor and I've seen two in China as part of a work trip. Very cool. They weren't completed yet. We were like actually inside when they were being built. So that was that was pretty cool. But nothing Aren't was... Aren't we a big deal? Well, you know, those reactors weren't working. So I don't want to brag too much. The, so the, the... Yeah, right. The citizens went outside. And Our... then you could see ash coming Ooh. down yeah, on Yeah, they're them. getting lethal doses of and radiation. The whole time I was thinking, no, they don't understand what's... They're all going to die. Yeah. And that's very, very sad. It's even sadder because the plant workers who are trying to figure out what's happening, they can't get access to what they call the good dos- dosimeters. Right. Um, they can only use some of them that have an upper limit, and the upper limit is pretty low. It's like one right. point, what 3.6 rhodogens. Uh, I'm not even going to try to get into all the calculations, the algorithms that go into different ways of measuring radioactivity. Because right. 3.6 isn't astronomical. It's higher than you would want, but exactly. for a plant worker, it's okay. Yeah, for... it's not going to kill you immediately or in a couple hours, but you will have lasting effects later on. But the issue is, is that the dosimeters, that's their upper limit. Right. But that number gets reported over and over again throughout up the chain because it's a very convenient and comfortable number. Yep. It's a what do they call it? It's an X ray. Yeah. And it's like That's right, yeah. But it's something like a chest X ray. It's like a hundred chest X rays, yeah. but it's a it's equivalent that someone can understand. But clearly the good dosimeter, which is locked and they don't have access to it, it, it would be able to show more, but at this point they don't have that. Right. But we start to meet some of the people who the show if you were looking at this pretty basic, you would see that these might be the villains. We meet Two people. We meet uh, the plant manager, whose name is uh, Victor Brukhanov. Brukhanov, yeah. Okay, thank you. Uh, I'm going to call him Victor. Um, <laughs> Victor Victor Curlyhair. Uh, and yeah. then uh, chief engineer Nikolai Fomin. Yeah. Ooh, that's a good one. They receive a report from, from our friend Dyatlov, who had he's been running around a little bit. He's now going to go start to talk to the, the managers and everything. And he says, everything's fine. You know, there's minor issues. There was some kind of an explosion, but it wasn't the core. They thought it maybe a hydrogen tank exploded. He says 3.6 rotogens only, not a big deal. Mm-hmm. Uh, any information when other people from the plant come in and say, no, the reactor's gone, I saw it, they get yelled out. And that's the kind of stuff that gets written in a short report. And this is all real. Yep. Gets shot right up the chain all the way to uh, the head of the head of everything, you know, Gorbachev. Uh, but then we see this amazing meeting where the local executive committee of uh, Pripyat, 
uh, they get together and they have a little conversation. How does this conversation go? Because it, it's like a flick like up board meeting. I know you said this week, Plowshares, oh, their board yes. meeting is happening. This is like a, did, you, did your board meeting go like this? Oh, goodness, no. Thankfully. <laughs> this was in the show much worse. Hmm. And I think it plays out really well because there's there's a couple of characters that are asking serious questions, right? So Brakhanov basically says, everything's fine. There was an explosion. It was a control tank. Everything's okay. And this one guy in the back basically says, they're lying to you, right? Like he turns to all of his colleagues like, they are lying to you. He says, you see men outside throwing up. You see men bleeding. You see firefighters getting sick and falling over. And he says, we need to know how many Rotogen there are, and we need to evacuate the city. And they all look at him like he's nuts. Like, comrade, this is hysteria, right? My, my favorite is then the, the party person, the yeah. elder, comes in, oh. and, and he gives a really compelling speech. And by the way, for those of us that are Game of Thrones fans, that's Maester Lewin. Yeah. So there's someone what? you're coming, yeah, yeah the, the kindly old man who we are all meant to trust. Yeah. yeah. But this is the critical moment, right? The critical scene where this guy, the, the party boss, stands up and he turns the tables, right? He says, young man, I, I can tell you right now that glorious comrade Lenin would be so proud of you. Mm-hmm. You know, it's clear that you care about the people. You know, he says, it is our jobs as men of the party to ensure that the people don't hurt themselves. They don't undermine the fruits, fruits of their, of their own labor. labor. Yeah, and so so Soviet. So they they this snap happens right, and they go immediately to denial, contain. And I love there's that scene. He's standing up against the table, and he says, "We cut the phone lines. You know, make sure no disinformation gets out." And and this is accurate. Of course, as soon as the meeting concludes, everybody goes about their their different ways. What happens almost immediately? But the outlaw starts vomiting and basically passes out because he has suffered an incredible dose as well. Yeah, more than 3.6. Yep, yep. Uh, and then uh, we're almost at the end of this episode. We, we get introduced uh, to the person we saw uh, two years later in the show timeline, Legasov. And he's woken up. Uh, he's told to, that he's about to be joined uh, to a committee that is, uh, you know, been appointed. He's been appointed by Gorbachev himself. Mm-hmm. And the key thing to know is, is that like Legasov, he's actually a pretty big deal. The major, one of the major nuclear institutes out there. He's the second in charge, and he is about to, in in real life, be once the guy who's above him was very, very old, but a renowned figure uh, in in the field. He was about to retire. Most likely, at that point, if the elections were held at that day, he would be the person appointed mm-hmm. to be the head of this. In the show, he's described Lagasov as a the person who was like an ex super expert in RBMK reactors. He's described as a nuclear person. In in, in real life, he's he was an amazing prodigy, but he was a chemist uh, who knew about the reactors, but knew about them more like as we know these this field, but better. Right. But not we're not we don't work in a plant. He didn't design anything. Right. He's also a party man, yes, which is what they don't really get into in the show. He's part of this political apparatus, right? He's very well trusted by the party. That's why he's on. They wouldn't put a rogue, someone that could go rogue onto this. They put people that they trust. Yeah. This key moment, or it happens at the very beginning and at the very end. It sets the stage for the meaning of this show, right? The through line, the very first line that you said is, what is the cost of lies? And I think it really digs into what the show is getting at. I'll tell you what the cost of lies are. The, the life of that bird that ends the episode when it just yeah. falls in the sky. Yeah. Right. In the middle of a bunch of children walking around to go into school. 
it just dies and kind of cr- doesn't just die it like crumples in, in on itself, itself yeah oh yep. but but i think i think that 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 sort of his introduction right after we see the po- party bosses saying cut the phone lines really sort of spells it out right there was a critical technical failure that caused this explosion, but it was lies, lies about the technical problems of the reactor and lies about what caused the explosion and the lies about the severity of how bad it was that led to this disaster that actually cost people their lives. Jeff, Jeff, please remain calm. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> which is the name of episode two oh. of the show. Uh, so we started about 8.30 a.m., which is seven hours after the explosion. Uh, I want, I, one of the things I enjoyed listening uh, to the companion uh, Chernobyl podcast, uh, was it Craig mentioned at one point? Craig Mason, he were not on first name basis. He says that you want to really note that there's time continues to expand out. So the first episode is just a couple of hours, and the next episode is like a day or two. Then it gets a little bit longer until we're at the very end, episode five. We're not only, does, but it's you know we'll get into it, but it starts from the beginning, like almost before the accident, and then months later. And you can see the patches of time by following the character that we met at the very beginning, Ludmilla. You can follow her pregnancy throughout the course of this. That kind of tells you how long this process has been going. So we're back to a place we really don't know. We we see these two scientists. They're kind of chatting. And then all of a sudden there's an alarm that goes off. A a dosimeter is when the guy opens the window, maybe like to smoke a cigarette or something. And all of a sudden the, the alarm goes off and they're worried, oh, there's a leak inside. But no, it must be outside, right? Something's happening. Yeah, so it's a nuclear laboratory. And so they think, this alarm's going off from inside their laboratory. You say, oh, one of our experiments is leak. A leak, yeah. Right. And then she says, no, it would have gone off before. It happened when you opened the window. So then they start to wonder, is it maybe a nuclear bomb test? The Americans attacking? Is it a space program thing? I think they say at one point. Yeah. But no, it's not. So because this character we get introduced to, uh, Ulana Homyuk. Thank you. She is smart. She goes and runs an (laughs) isotope test. And determines that it's iodine-131, uh, which is not something that comes out of uh, a great quantity at that point from a nuclear uh, detonation for a, a weapons test. It does happen, but it's not – it's most of the time it occurs uh, with in large quantities from uh, nuclear power fuel, yeah. and nuclear fuel. They say, you know, well, who could it be, right? So they start calling around. And um, her colleague says, well, it's Chernobyl then. That's the next closest one. She says, no, that's 200 kilometers away. The reactor would have to be open to the sky. Oops. And then they call them. And I don't know if this is in the show, but I've. Nobody picks up. Yeah. Yeah. And no one picks up Mm -hmm. and no one's there. But there's hundreds of employees there. So. Somebody would pick up the phone. You would think. So we're introduced to this character, Olana. Now, she is a composite character. She doesn't exist in real life. There's not a single person. She's meant to represent the entirety of the nuclear engineering world, the nuclear scientists, the physicists. And she does it well. She does a great job of it. Um, And I think this is a really good reflection of how important scientists were in Russia, particularly nuclear scientists, they were given amazing privileges. They were allowed to travel abroad to conferences. They could basically conferences. do whatever they wanted. Yeah, they were, I guess I was, one of the things, I think it was in um, Midnight in Chernobyl, the book, they um, attended a conference in Geneva in August of 1955 on the peaceful uses of nuclear energy. Uh-huh. They had a full delegation, and it was the first time that Soviet delegation for scientists had left in 20 years. Yep. They were there for a big reason, because they announced that they had hooked up a a, a nuclear reactor to a Moscow power grid. First time ever that and it happened. And they wanted everyone to know. Uh, in real life, that reactor almost immediately was like sh- problems started it to arise. Down, yeah. It was mostly made for nuclear weapon 
fuel production. Right. But it was a good talking point, and it really shows you how kind of a high priority this was for the, the Soviet Union. But kind of back to the show and back to Saturn moments, we see some scenes in the hospital in the town of Chernobyl, which is close to the reactor. It's not the reactor is not in the city, but it's it's it, it's pretty close. People start getting overrun. The, all of the firefighters who earlier in the first episode, some of them we see holding the graphite. Like, what is this? I would pick this up if I saw it on the ground. And there, you know, burns start happening. Mm-hmm. And they get sick and the plant workers are coming in. People are trying to find out what's happening with their family. So this is a really powerful scene when the doctor is, is telling people what to do, like with their clothes and from the plant workers. Oh, yeah. And one of the doctors, who's uh, um, she notices that this is happening. She's like, guys... Their, their, their clothes are fine. Something's wrong. It's radiation. It's them. So she Inside takes them. She takes all of the clothes off of the of the plant workers and the and the firefighters and basically takes them to the basement. You can see pictures of this. Those clothes are still there. They're still there to this day. And still more radioactive than you'd want them to be. Yep. And it, it's pretty sad. And we have Ludmilla also looking for her, for her husband. She can't find him. Yeah. Uh, she's told that he was put on a helicopter to Moscow. And right. and there are moments in the show, and I want to point this out, where there are these little small moments of kindness that characters give to each other in a system that's not really designed to be be, be very kind. <laughs> and you know, it's a reflection very well of the people that are that are that are involved in this. Uh, one of the bureaucrats says he's he's on a helicopter to Moscow, go to that hospital, tell them that, and then drop my name, and that might help. And we don't see her for a while, but she does. She goes. She does get in a helicopter. But then, yeah. Then, then we see our friend uh, Lagasov. Uh, he he's joined the committee meeting. He's given a quick little like dossier of what happened, and he reads right. through, and he notices that three point six is a pretty weird number. Uh, that's also the upper limit on on the dosimeter. So he tells everybody about. He interrupts the meeting as it's concluding, right? And he says, uh, "Look, something's happening. There's graphite on the ground, which tells you that the core has exploded, because Gorbachev is being told." Everything's, Everything's fine. fine. Yeah. Right. It's a great scene. You're introduced yeah. to, to Gorbachev, right? And they get him pretty good. I think that look, he looks pretty he good. Looks I think really he looks good. So good. But one of my favorite characters is, um, what's his face? Stellan Skarsgård, who plays Boris Sherbina, right? Mm-hmm. And he's this he's this party man. He's like the quintessential oh, party man. And, and so he's sort of sitting back, one leg draped over the other, and he says, I'm told as much as a chest X-ray, so if anybody <laughs> needs a checkup, now would be a good time, you know. He's trying to cue the laugh reel. Yeah, right. But he's trying to he's trying to make light of it, right? And um, and it's just like let's just keep the wheels turning. I'm ready for my next promotion up the ladder, like. And then uh, Valeri says no, right? And he slams the table yeah. as everybody's getting up to leave, yeah. and Gorbachev goes, yes. You know, it says, yeah, and like, and Boris is like, like, you can take this up with me later. You know, it says, no, 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 Boris, let him speak. And and he, yeah, he paints this picture that this is, this is a catastrophe on a global scale. Right. Right. Unless they get a handle on it, it will devastate the continent at the very least. Mm -hmm. Right. That's, that's the lower limit of, of his possibility for terrifying outcome. And they're immediately like, this is hysterical. Like, again, Gorbachev tells him, you hear this line a lot. Stop being alarmist. Yeah. Stop stop freaking out. Please chill. Calm down. Remain calm. Gorbachev is effectively freaked out. He sends Borish uh, and Lagasov to Chernobyl to find out what's happening. Um, And then we get that fun exposition we talked about earlier about how a nuclear power reactor works. How does a nuclear reactor work? What? It's a simple question. 
It's hardly a simple answer. Of course. You presume I'm too stupid to understand. So I'll restate. Tell me how a nuclear reactor works, or I'll have one of these soldiers throw you out of the helicopter. We see Boris and Legasov, they arrive over at the nuclear power plant, and I love this. Immediately, Victor and, and Foman come over and provide a list of people who should be held accountable. I love it. It's like, immediately, it's like, it's if you were broke, you, you broke a lamp, and then your parents come in, and you're like, I'm going to give you the five reasons why you should punish my little yeah, brother that's or why little it was sister. Billy. He did it. No, yeah. he did it. Yeah. Yeah. In the show, you see a, a, a friendship developing between Boris and Valeri, and Valeri yeah. because he immediately takes all that information he just learned about uh, graphite and everything else um, and says, look, I was just in a helicopter. I saw the graphite. I know what concrete is because that was his background. Right. In the show, I think in I think in real life, I don't know if he had a construction background, but he was the guy you would send when there was a chemical fire, yeah, a plant, a chemical plant that exploded. Right. Uh, he has all those merit badges of, of like conventional issues right. and chemical things, but not this is his first Definitely. nuclear one. Right. And I love I love that scene because he says, "So why did I see graphite on the roof?" You know, and they say, "Oh, sir, you must be confused. That that was yeah. burnt concrete." Oh and he says. Gosh. Well, there you made your mistake because I I don't know much about graphite, but I know everything about concrete. My my hobby on the weekends is I burn concrete yeah. out of my backyard. You fool! We start to get these analogies that are being des- that are describing the scale of the problem, and Legasov says that the core is exposed that there are fifteen hundred rotogens every second uh, or very large amounts, and he says uh, it's producing. As twice as much radiation per hour as Hiroshima. Well, this will happen, what does he say, every hour forever. Yeah. It's not through the wrong again. It's 15,000. Comrade Savinath. What does that number mean? It means the core is open. It means the fire we're watching with our own eyes is giving off nearly twice the radiation released by the bomb in Hiroshima. And that's every single hour, hour after hour. 20 hours since the explosion, so 40 bombs worth by now. 48 more tomorrow, and it will not stop. Not in a week, not in a month. It will burn and spread its poison until the entire continent is dead. So I think that it's important here to talk about what radiation does to the human body. Yeah, get it, let's get into it. What, yeah. what, what happens? Well, so, so I, like, I like they talk about this in the book, but Hiroshima was actually the first opportunity. Hiroshima and Nagasaki were the first opportunity for people to really study what happened from acute radiation syndrome, right? Which is where the body absorbs too much. Yeah, absorbs too much radiation. There's, there's three different types of radiation. There's alpha particles, beta particles, and gamma, uh, gamma rays. Yeah. yeah. Um, and they all do slightly different things to the human body. None of them are good in any amounts. But we're always under radiation, right? right? You receive a ton of radiation when you fly cross-country. Because uh, you, you're closer to the atmosphere. Right. right. Yeah, when you're, at, when you're at altitude, you, you actually – so I think it's like if you're in the Chilean Alps – you take on as much radiation in a day as you would by spending a week in Fukushima or something like that. And this that. is cosmic radiation essentially from the sun. Right, mm-hmm. right. So from nuclear weapons, uh, refined nuclear materials, you take a ton of radiation. They're highly radioactive. Um, so I, I, this, I think that this is an interesting explanation. Um, for Hiroshima and Nagasaki, of those who lived through the initial explosion in Nagasaki, 35,000 people died within 24 hours from radiation poisoning alone. 
Those suffering from ARS, acute radiation syndrome, lost their hair within one or two weeks and then experienced bloody diarrhea before succumbing to infection and intense fevers. Another 37,000 died within three months. A similar number survived for longer, but after another three years developed leukemia. By the end of the 1940s, the disease would be the first cancer linked to radiation. So, I mean, like, like this was an opportunity where, I mean, almost all of our understanding of ARS came from Hiroshima and Nagasaki at first. Right. They were able to start to measure um, how much did it take? How far away were you? And they, they found out things like it's actually really difficult to measure radiation because it's not just an amount. It's not like a temperature and you can tell how hot something is. It, it matters what type of radiation, as you mentioned, alpha, beta, gamma. Alpha particles can be blocked by your skin. Right. Right. It's really bad if you swallow something or eat something that has that because then it gets you from the inside. Beta particles are not blocked by skin but can be blocked by, like, what is it, like uh, aluminum. Some clothes might be a little a bit better. A piece of paper. Could. piece of paper. Yep. Gamma, Nothing thick, thick lead, that. maybe. So the main ones, there's, there's cesium, which I believe is a beta mm-hmm. emitter. So cesium is really nasty stuff. You can, strontium-90 goes after your bones. Iodine goes after your thyroid because that's where it gets caught. Cesium is just pretty much nasty yeah. everywhere. Um, yeah. But the strontium is really bad, as you mentioned, because it, it eats your bone marrow. Yeah. And what's your bone marrow do? It produces white blood cells. What do white blood cells do? They prevent infection. My other example here is in the 1950s, to further test this, the United States Air Force built a 10 megawatt unshielded reactor yeah. right and i mean which is tiny compared to what these reactors were um and at the touch of a button they could raise the reactor up into the local uh countryside around it and see what would happen uh so in june of 1959 the radiation effects reactor was raised for the first time and it killed almost everything in its vicinity dead bugs fell from the air small animals and the bacteria living in and upon them were exterminated in a phenomenon that the technicians called an instant taxidermy. Yeah. Except for grass. Yeah. Yeah. Which is why you hear uh, one of the uh, amazing philosopher uh, nuclear uh, issues, Jonathan Shell. He wrote an entire large article in a chapter of a book called A Nation of Insects and Grass. <laughs> and it basically is in the event of a nuclear war, full scale nuclear war, what would survive but insects who now can thrive because they are affected by radiation, but not as bad. And what kill, what dies is birds. Birds eat insects, so now uh. they can survive. And grass, because grass is what's left, and now the insects eat the grass. And those are the two things that the, the world will be left, which is a very incredibly powerful metaphor for what you imagine driving through Kansas and not seeing anything for miles and miles and miles. Well, that's already Kansas. Fair enough, fair <laughs> enough. Um, and the only thing else I'd want to add here is, you know, the way radiation does this is, you know, radiation is essentially just energy. It's a, a very particular high frequency of energy, but what it will do is if it gets into your system, uh, it will literally rip apart your cellular DNA. So the body either gets screwed up, your DNA gets screwed up, or it doesn't. It, once it then tries to uh, reproduce itself, it can't. And right. it particularly affects bone marrow because bone marrow is constantly producing new blood cells. And if it can't, it, it won't work. It just kind of implodes. It implodes, yeah. Your oh, skin. It, that's the sun. That's ex- It's fusion and fission. All of a sudden, all at once. Yep. How do you treat it if the person hasn't received a very high dose or even if they have, but it's you never really know, antibiotics to treat the fact that they no longer has, have an immune system. Platelet transfusions, blood yeah. transfusions. You give uh, drugs to help produce more uh, blood cells and you give them iodine tablets. But the one thing to know is iodine tablets are only effective 
if they're given they're immediately preventative. Yeah. preventative they don't do anything if once you once you have it happen they can't really do much right thank you jeff for kind of starting that point because we really need to know kind of everything that ends up happening uh to really then understand kind of what do we need to do to stop that from happening on a wider scale so what's the plan the plan is to put out the fire the plan is to drop some stuff onto it what are what are the things oh, that they shoot. decide to drop some sand and some and boron, boron right. and boron because it absorbs yeah. neutrons and sand because you know it's it's, it's uh, smothering. Heavy. It's yeah, smothering. they're trying yeah. to smother. It's like if you were an eagle scout and you're taught to put. If you're an eagle and scout, and a girl scout. Thank you. If you're an eagle scout or a girl scout and you're and you're being hunted, right? That's what they teach you, and you want to not be seen. You pour water on a fire, you get smoke. Yep. You pour sand. And the, bear, the bears don't right. find you. And this is the first of the great scale scenes in this show, right? It, where they basically say, well, how much sand and boron do you need? And he basically says, how much do you have? Yeah. Yeah. You know, and later on, when they're trying to stop this meltdown, he says, I'm going to need all of the liquid nitrogen in the Soviet Union. You know, and that's yeah. just how terrifyingly catastrophic. I think they say 5,000 tons is what they're going to need. Right, because it's basically impossible to contain at this point. Yep. But then we also get to see some interesting scenes where Lagasov starts to realize he can't tell people about what's happening. Uh, he says we need to evacuate the, the whole city. The city has not at this point been evacuated. People living and working at the plant very close to it are still there. But they're told not to evacuate, that it, that, that will be a decision made by someone else. And Sherbina is still in the mindset that everything's yeah. just fine. And, and that's what uh, Lagasov says to two people who are there at a bar in a hotel, the one hotel in town. They're drinking. Uh, there's an amazing scene where the bartender goes to pour him a drink, and it's this very subtle thing. And he says, I don't want this glass. I want the other one that was turned upside down. Of course, it's not really going to matter. No. But it's something you tell yourself. But he can't. He, he does one of his first in the show lies. He lies to people and says everything is fine. There's this very strong myth out there, uh, and this is in real life at the time, where you can treat yourself with radiation with what? The type of drink we're having now, vodka. Vodka, vodka has medicinal purposes. Uh, so maybe he was channeling that and Treats saying- Treats about everything. That's very, it's Russians treat everything with vodka. Yeah. There should be, oh, this is very, I don't, it's hard to make jokes about this. There should be like an iodine infused vodka <laughs> that you actually does treat very well. And that's that how you get your exist. kids to drink their, to take their iodine is through vodka. Because no one wants to just drink those things unless they're in gummy form. So we, we see lots and lots of scenes of helicopters dropping sacks of boron and, and sand. We, we get this a really powerful scene of a helicopter crashing. And it's kind of meant to imply that the helicopter was affected by radiation, by traveling too close above right. the open core. Now, this did happen. There was a crash, and it's you can see video of this on the internet if you search for a Chernobyl helicopter crash. But it was it was months later. It had nothing to do with radiation. The helicopter blades caught like a chain from a crane. Right, and you can actually see that in the show. The, you don't know what's happening. The radio statics out, but then the the blades uh, hit a crane boom and it comes apart. It, for the purposes of the show, it works very well because you get yeah. then the reaction of Boris who says, "Keep going," yeah. but approach from. The other side. Yeah. But then Ulana finds out about this because they, I like this scene a lot. They're talking with another scientist. I think another scientist probably in, in Russia. And they use code to, to basically say what's happening. Oh, well, they're dropping boron and sand. Yeah. Um, and that's how she learns. And she she's smart, right? She's meant to be the character who can figure these things out. She's probably an expert in, in this reactor type, or at least in the science of it. And she knows this is not a good idea. We don't necessarily know why yet. Lagasov still tries to get people to leave. 
He says at one point that they'll be dead within five years if they don't leave. But we still have this fight uh, between Boris and Lagasov. They don't f- trust each other 100% yet, but Boris is starting to come around. Um, but here's, I think, where we start to get uh, a, a pretty powerful change in how people are looking at this. Sweden, who's right next to, to Russia, not very far from Chernobyl, they notice and they have reported this. They're asking questions. It's mm-hmm. in the news now. It's in the newspapers all around the world. The Americans kind of, and this is in real life, almost immediately after the accident took place, one of their spy satellites was just happened to be taking a photo, and it noticed the explosion. They thought a missile had been gone off, and they thought, well, like, are they testing secret missiles at this power plant? But almost immediately, they can see there's something happening. The next pass through around, they can see fire hoses being pointed uh, at the reactor. They know something's happening. And this isn't the first time that this sort of interaction between the U.S. and the Soviets has happened. And in the process of researching for this, I discovered this fun fact. Uh, Francis Gary Powers, who was the U-2 pilot that's famously shot down over the Soviet Union and sparks this international incident, was fl- overflying the Soviet Union so he could look at another nuclear yeah. explosion that happened at a nuclear power. Uh, it, it was at a, a research station. Um, so the United States had had this history of, of spying on uh, Soviet nuclear power institutes. The funny thing is, is that the Soviets were so good at covering up nuclear accidents that for years, everybody assumed that somehow the Soviets had the safest yeah. nuclear industry in the entire world. They're, they're chapter founding members of the IAEA and never once reported an accident in their nuclear power industry, right? People that listen to this podcast think that I never stutter because I always edit it out. <laughs> this is a clean podcast. Everything works out perfectly. But eventually, everything catches up to them. They know that they have to evacuate these people. And thank God that the mayor of Kiev had decided to stockpile all of the buses of Kiev yeah. and have oh. got them lined up and was just waiting for the order. And finally, when that order comes through, 10 miles of buses come into Pripyat, Pripyat. Uh, and pick people up. And it's a very, it's one of, uh, this is one of my favorite uh, powerful scenes in the show. Everyone's calm and orderly. Yeah. They're told by the the, mil- the military guards, hey, just take what you need for the three days. Take only what you You'll need. You'll be coming back. Yeah, don't bring. So some people were like, oh, I don't want my like clothes, my fancy party clothes being stolen. Right. So they, instead of taking warm clothes, they took like their party gowns and some the jewelry. expensive things. Yep. But what they don't take are their pets. And we see this scene oh. of a dog running uh around the bus like basically like hey what's going on are we going for a ride yep um very very sad um and that's probably the saddest it'll get when it comes to pets i think uh in the course of the show no later on yeah i was gonna say Um, later on it gets worse yeah but yeah so this this okay this this is where the show gets a little for me it's a little bit weird and i wish they would find a way to do this differently ulana then drives to chernobyl by herself in a car and she gets pulled over at a checkpoint and she says, all right, I'm being arrested. Take me to the highest person. Yeah. And she gets eventually brought to Lagosov and Boris and says, look, you are screwing up. You're throwing all this sand and boron. Yeah, that will put out the fire. But what it's really is more like a blanket. But the fire won't go out. It'll just get hotter under the blanket because there's nowhere else for the heat to go. And what's going to happen is you're going to basically produce lava uh, and that will continue to rise. That will burn the uranium fuel. And either it will cause a meltdown or it will explode with what she calls the force of two 
to four megatons of an explosion within 72 hours when that boron mixed sand with uranium fuel touches a water plant. Right. Right. Because there's, they thought, Lagasov didn't think that the water tanks underneath the reactor were still being filled, but of course they were. So what's going on here is that the the temperature has reached that critical point. The fuel rods or the the fuel pellets and um, have started to melt down, right? It's so hot that it's also going to melt all this sand that they've dumped on it. And they have been pumping water into this place for days now, trying to put out this fire. And so what happens when, just like producing nuclear power, when something really, really hot gets in contact with water, it produces steam. Mm -hmm. And what they're actually talking about here is that there is so much water underneath this power station, and this material is so hot that it will cause a steam explosion. But the potential explosive power of this explosion is outrageous. When the lava enters these tanks, it will instantly superheat and vaporize, causing a significant thermal explosion. How significant? We estimate between two and four megatons. Everything within a 30 kilometer radius will be completely destroyed, including the three remaining reactors at Chernobyl. The entirety of the radioactive material in all of the cores will be ejected and dispersed by a massive shockwave, approximately 200 kilometers and likely be fatal to the entire population of Kiev, as well as a portion of Minsk. The release of radiation will be severe and will impact all of Soviet Ukraine, Latvia, Lithuania, Belarusia, as well as Poland, Czechoslovakia, Hungary, Romania, and most of East Germany. She's making a lot of really bad worst case assumptions, but the thing that I think maybe people don't no, at least point in the, watching the show, if you're not a nuclear nerd like us, Chernobyl power plant had four operating reactors. This was the largest one that exploded, but there were three other ones, including the third reactor, which was next door. Yeah. The most of what the firefighters did in to, when they sacrificed their lives to do this, they stopped the fire from spreading to the third reactor, which would have made everything a lot worse. But this, yeah. whatever size of explosion this was going to be, even if it wasn't two megatons, it could have blown up the third reactor right. and then people would get sick and it would be a threat to Europe. Yeah. We're talking at that point, not yeah. just the people of this, this this area, which was a lot of people, but you know, not a, a continent. Right. For reference, the largest U.S. nuclear weapon in the stockpile right now is one megaton, the B-83. Mm-hmm. This is twice to four times as powerful as that. It's pretty, it's pretty bad. And what they call the, the they call it lava, and it is lava, basically. Um, but the, the technical term, if we want to get like that, if we want to get super critical about this, uh, it is co- it's called corium. Uh, and it is something that happens. And it is something that definitely happened in Chernobyl, but we'll get into that a little bit later. Sorry. I wanted the so they have to come up with a plan. The plan is to send some people, oh. some divers, into a radioactive area to drain the water. They're gonna have to do it by hand so that the water will drain out and then that way they won't have this explosion. And one of the most powerful scenes mm-hmm. is made up for the show, but it's a reflection of what they were what they were doing, which is Lagasov turns to Gorbachev and says Of course, we will need your permission. My permission for what? Uh, The water in these ducts. The level of radioactive contamination. They'll likely be dead in a week. We're asking for your permission to kill three men. 
Comrade Legasov. <clears throat> All victories inevitably come at a cost. And Gorbachev never really answers that question. Mm-mm. He just doesn't say no and kind of walks away. He says something like, yeah, that sounds awful. Like, th- they bring this up several times, right? That the great strength of our people is our capacity to endure mm-hmm. loss, right? Whether it's in the form of lives or material loss, right? But they And they constantly reference this, like, we were willing to sacrifice millions of people for Stalingrad, right? We were like the great capacity of the Soviet Union is to give up lives in name of the cause, right? Yeah. And and that's what they're doing here. What are three men to protecting all of the Soviet dream? And they try to put this in a dramatic form by having the volunteers, right? right. right. So, Megan, what is the scene here we get where we, we're trying to find some people to volunteer for this? It's not like trying to volunteer to catch the next flight because of an airplane is overbooked. Well, I mean, right. So they volunteer, but also, which is shocking to me in the show, in reality, it was really hard to recruit volunteers Mm -hmm. because, yes, they were paying them. Rubles didn't mean much then, and they still don't mean a lot now. But no one wanted to risk 400 rubles for their life. And also, this wasn't in the show, but when I was reading up on what actually happened, um, there was an account of a man who actually worked on the cleanup, they had decimeters and they only went as far as 25 because uh, for what they called, I think chemical warfare troops is what they called the soldiers shipped in mm-hmm. to work on this. They said that that's the highest that you could work on assignment in the area. And they didn't allow the decimeters to go higher than that because they needed the bodies to work on it. Yeah. If it, so. if it showed that there were more, then they would have to be sent home. So, yeah, I don't think people were really volunteering for this. And and, and re- in reality, no one volunteered for this diver nope. mission. They didn't even ask. They just said, hey, Phil, you showed up. Now it's your turn. And there were, I think it was three divers in total in real life. And they shockingly survived for yeah. longer than yeah, I was expecting. I think yeah. Still, yeah. It just tells you how really unpredictable uh, radiation is because it just entirely depends on where you are, what you were affected, how quickly you were treated. I mean, they got sick. Oh, but yeah. the treatments we talked about earlier, they worked. This is one of the most scary scenes of the show, which is they're all suited up in diving gear. There's no words. Oh, it's terrifying. And they're trying, they're, they're in knee-deep water. And it's black other than their flashlights. And the flashlights click off. Yeah. And then you hear the guy you're counter just basically one long note. It's yeah. not even beeping anymore because it's so ridiculous. And then fade to black. Yes. Right. And, and the other critical thing here is that it's the second... Super, super critical thing? Super critical thing? Yeah, super, super critical, critical thing <laughs> is the... Uh, it's the second time that uh, our hero, uh, Valeri, tells a lie. Yeah. Right? He says, he says, well, you'll be given a bonus of 400 rubles and... Uh, and you'll be fine, you know? And then they say, like, really? Like, we're not going to be fine. And he says, basically, like, we don't know what's going to happen to you, but it has to be done. And Boris stands up and he says that thing again, right? It's like, well, you have to do it because it has to be done. And you're the only ones that can do it. You know, it says, I spit on the men that think this is a good idea. Um, so we moved to episode three. Uh, so we're getting close to, we're in the middle of episode here. And this one is called Open Wide O Earth. And we learn what earth we open up uh at the end of the episode the divers worked they opened up the water valve so that the 
the gates would open and right. like they could dream. Yeah. Yep. And what do the workers do to celebrate? They're given bottles of vodka to immediately celebrate and everything looks like it's fine. But we get to a situation where it's not fine. Ludmilla finally makes it to Moscow through, again, mm. a, a couple of moments of kindness. She's able to bribe a, I guess maybe this isn't kindness. She, she Maybe it's kindness because she gets a discount. Mm. Uh, she bribes a nurse with money yeah. to find out where her husband is and to be able to get in. She finds her husband, but the husband seems pretty good. They're playing cards, right? Yeah, they're, they're laughing. They're hooked up to IVs, like... Not bad. No. They didn't have any boils or anything. Nothing. But the nurse does say, don't touch him. And she asks, are you pregnant? And she says, the Ludmilla says no. Right. She kind of just says no immediately. But then later that night, the firefighter husband starts to scream in pain. And we learn from Legasov that radiation, one of the cruel twists of reality, is there's a latency period. Mm-hmm. Your body recovers from the, the external symptoms while that whole time your body is, your Internally, cells are dying. yep. And then it comes back pretty quick. We do learn that people have been evacuated. The exclusion zone is set to be, what, 30 kilometers? When in reality, it probably, according to the scientists, the, the, the experts in the room, it should be like 200 yeah. kilometers. And Lagostov is not happy about this because it's be, the decision is being made by a party the man. The party. Yeah. No, of course, he is a party man. Yes. And Boris points this out that says, I am a party man. <laughs> what, what, what does he say in, in his Russian accent about him being a, a, a career party man? Yeah, Jeff. I'm a party man. Oh, mm. sure, we'll take it. I'm not yeah. doing it. To be fair, I'm not doing a Russian accent. Bring, I'm doing a Stellan Skarsgård accent. All right. Fair enough, fair enough. Bring, bring some more vodka. That'll get your voice yeah, better. Yeah, there you go. So we get some good news. We get the good news that the cesium and iodine levels uh, out of the reactor are dropping. But there's a spike in zirconium. Zirconium, what did we learn from earlier, guys? Zirconium is a heat-resistant alloy that's around the... Fuel rods. It clads the fuel rods. So if you're getting zirconium... It means you're melting down. It's not good. And this is a a super interesting meta-commentary that I want to get into very quickly here. So there is this movie out there from 19... I think it's 1979, Stars uh, Jane Fonda, Michael Douglas, Jack Lemmon called The China Syndrome. And it's about a nuclear power plant in the United States that undergoes a meltdown. The Three Mile Island, yeah? Yes. So the crisis is that the fuel will melt through the concrete, through the ground, to the Earth's core or down as far as it possibly can get. Not good. So this movie was out there. It was very popular and it scared quite a number of people about nuclear power. And of course, it wasn't shown in in Russia to the wide audience because this is news about Three Mile Island was barely even talked about. Yeah. But some people in Russia had seen the movie, including someone who's not a character in the show, but he is a rival for the head position of the institute that that, uh, Legasov is at. Um, and his his character, but he had yeah. had the special privilege to see this movie. And while this is happening, he's also on site with Lagosov and, and, and Borscht. And they're talking about whether or not the movie China Syndrome is real or not. And whether or not we need to worry about a meltdown causing the type of things we see in the movie. And this character, this guy... Uh, is like, no, this is really serious. We should be worried about this. And Legasov is kind of pointing out, no, I am the expert. I don't trust the portrayal of of this this thing in this movie. Mm-hmm. This is not something that actually can happen. So kind of the same way if they had a, if there was the podcast technology existed back then, uh, of course it did, right? We see Legasov with the tape. Yeah. <laughs> that tickled me a little bit, but it was also this really interesting discussion of 
whether or not science and Hollywood portrayal of things are correct and how that guides people's thinking. Gorbachev may have saw China syndrome that may be guiding people who aren't nuclear experts. So it's the same thing as when when Ronald Reagan sees the day after and he starts to get, you know, his frame of mind. Like, oh, man, we got to We got to get rid of these things. Shows the power. Shows the power of film, both for good and and uh, bad, or at least uh, maybe not good or bad, but just how things are uh, understood and portrayed matter. Well, and also we know this has had effect on Gorbachev, right? I mean, yeah. you, you you mentioned to this me earlier, but he said something like Chernobyl is the number one reason for the downfall of the Soviet Union. And yeah, it's a, one of the things that's mentioned at the very end of the the show, right? But Gorbachev does not like how the situation is being played out in the news. There's a scene where he's like looking at newspaper headlines. Mm. And of course, the newspaper headlines, because of Russia's you know general love of secrecy and on these issues in particular, they weren't telling the Western news sources that were based in Moscow, they weren't telling those newspapers what was happening. Right. Uh, they knew something had happened. And there was occasionally, I think there was a story that I read that Porter who said that they knew someone who had a grandmother or a connection in, in Kiev had heard recently from a family member who was from Chernobyl that 2,000 people were dead. And they had no way to confirm that information. Yeah. But the newspapers ran the story in the oh. headlines, 2,000 dead, city destroyed, nuclear accident will destroy the rest of Europe. Gorbachev knows that even... If he doesn't have the full information, he knows 2,000 people are not dead. So he's upset by the news. He, at one point later on, well, well, I'll read a quote from him. He, like, is pounding the table. If he had a shoe, he would have hit the, the table with it uh, about how the, it's just, the, the headlines are wrong. Everything's fine. But there's no way to confirm the information. And it wasn't literally until, at one point, someone who we all know in the nuclear field, Hans Blix, who you may know from 2002-2003, who was leading from the IEA going into Iraq before the Iraq War, whose job was to see whether or not Iraq actually had a reconstituted a nuclear weapons program. And he came back and said that there wasn't. Hans Blix was also a member, he was still the head of the IEA during this accident, and he eventually went to Moscow and was given permission to fly a helicopter to go to Chernobyl, uh, the reactor, and to see everything. And one of the reasons why they allowed him to go was people, even the Russians, their minds were like racing with the possibilities of what was happening. And they, a lot of the people didn't trust what the government was telling them. So they needed to be told that things were not as bad as their imaginations were telling them so. And that was one of the things that Hans Blix did, was Hans Blix, international expert from Sweden, said that things are not as bad as you think it is. And that was such a powerful thing in, in the Russian media and, and government and party leaders kind of ran with that. Look, the Americans are wrong. The Swedish are correct. Things are not as bad as you think it is. And everything's I, fine. Well, and also, this just reminded me of something, the fact that before all of this happened, there was this magazine in Russia called Russian Life. Mm-hmm. They made a, an English version of it. And in the first edition of the English English version or American version of Russian life, it highlighted Chernobyl hmm. for nuclear energy. They're putting it out there that, hey, look at us. We're doing so well. Everything's yeah. so great. This is a powerful, I mean, this is very unique. No one else has this type of thing. We're better than all of you. And then all of a sudden this happens and they can't deal with it fast enough. Well, until... Chernobyl happened. The accident happened. The only reported major reactor incident was Three Mile Island. Yep, exactly. Right? Right. And we talked about this a little bit before. Actually, previous to this meltdown, 
Reactor one at Chernobyl had melted down, yeah. like like a partial Almost meltdown. Immediately. Yeah. Um, yep. The first one of these they built in Leningrad had a huge problem. Basically, had a smaller version of the problem that we'll get into later of what happened here. But all of this news is hitting Gorbachev. You know, the good news is that the fire is out. The bad news is that in about eight weeks, the concrete barrier foundation will melt away, and the core reactor will get into the groundwater that is responsible for 50 million people's water supplies. So what's the plan? Well, we only need what? How much nickel, liquid nitrogen? Like All of the liquid nitrogen in the Soviet Union. And, and Gorbachev's response is so great. It's like, oh, okay. Sure. And then he's they, they give it to him. Basically, the reason why they need this liquid nitrogen is because they want to build a refrigerator under the nuclear power plant so that if the reactor does melt down, it will cool and will prevent all this stuff from happening. Right. The very interesting thing is before he was arrested, Victor, his job was to find this liquid nitrogen. They they told because he wasn't arrested yet. He was like sent right. to another place and he had a, a job and he said, if you don't get enough liquid nitrogen, we will literally shoot you with a gun. So his job was to get on the phone, call all of his of buddies and collect some liquid nitrogen. Um, they recruit these amazing coal miners. It's a great scene where the head of the Ministry of Coal shows up That's in amazing. this like, baby blue suit and orders the people at the Tula mine to to come to Chernobyl, all hundred of you, come work. And the miners, who are a very important part of the industry in Russia, are like, screw you, what's happening here? Who's in charge here? I'm the crew chief. I'm Shadov, Minister of Coal Industries. We know who you are. How many men do you have? A hundred in total. I need all 100 men to gather their equipment and get on the trucks. Do you? To where? That's classified. Come on, then. Start shooting. You haven't got enough bullets for all of us. Kill as many as you can. Whoever's left, They'll beat the living piss out of each of you. This is Tula. This is our mine. We don't leave unless we know why. You're going to Chernobyl. Do you know what's happened there? We dig up coal, not bodies. The reactor fuel is going to sink into the ground and poison the water from Kiev to the Black Sea. All of it. Forever, they say. They want you to stop that from happening. But as they leave, all these dirty coal miners, because they were just working, right? Not dirty. They're, they're, they're covered in coal. Like, tap him on the shoulder. If he's the minister of coal, uh, they're yeah. going to make him the minister yeah. of coal. Now you look like the minister of coal. Yeah. Also another Game of Thrones uh, veteran right there. That's Lord Mormont, uh, the guy with the beard. No kidding. What? Yeah, That's totally. awesome. Yeah, yeah. There, there's quite a number of these. Wow. We'll keep, yeah. we, should, we should count these up. Uh, as we go through here, but but I I love these guys. Just like you yeah. said, they are this like in the after true Soviet. Yeah, right. right. So after the credits, um, they talk about this a little bit about how the these coal miners have pull, like yeah. more so than than any other people, sort of in in the lower class Soviet society. These guys have pull because they are. The like heroes of the Soviet Union. We need coal to make steel. Steel is the Soviet material. Yeah. You know, like we need these men. And and the thing that I love is that these guys. It echoes what happens with the divers, right? Mm-hmm. They say you have to go because we need you. Yeah. Otherwise, 
all the water is going to be poisoned, everyone's going to die, and they decide to do it. And even when they ask later on, the foreman asks Boris, he says, can you promise me that my men will be looked after? And he says, I can't. Yeah. Heroes don't always get their due, right? There is no true glory for valorous conduct. Like, I mean, they do it because it's the right thing, not because they'll get anything out of it. And if you really want it to be, you know, cynical, it's against their self-interest to save a competing fuel source. (laughs) Yeah, right. They would rather, I mean, if they were were cynical, they'd be like, nuclear power is awful. I don't want to save you from this because it will, you know, hurt the coal industry. That's not what they do. None of that is involved there. They eventually go in uh, and they dig what they need to do which is this huge tunnel they have to dig it all by hand they don't dig it with fans because the fans would spray more dust radioactive dust so what do they do they 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 get naked they they dig they dig everything together and the saddest thing about it is whole one of the saddest thing about this with the miners even though one out of every four that went in uh, eventually had a shortened lifespan due to this they they dug it faster than they need than they said they were they were going to they built the entire thing the the, the refrigerator the liquid nitrogen was fueled into it but they never turned it on they never needed to because the reactor fire eventually burned itself out and it, it cooled itself uh, through different ways and back to the hospital yeah and we're going to i think we'll start moving this a little bit quicker but i don't want not want to skip this scene we have this beautiful scene of Ludmilla and her husband the firefighter uh, Vasily, uh, who are in a hospital room, and she, he no longer can see anything. So she's, he's asking her to describe what she sees in Moscow, and she describes the sights. Tell me what you see outside. Tell me everything. I can see the red square. You see St. Basil's? Yeah. I told you I'd show you Moscow, didn't I? Huh? Have you been to the Red Square? Yeah, yeah. And the Kremlin is there. But what does she she sees like the if you were at a bad hotel and you look and you see oh like yeah brick wall. you see like a parking lot and like a broken fence it's yeah. but you know she feels bad for him. This is when it gets it starts getting really emotional. It's a moment of of grace by a stranger who lets her and him stay together. She holds his hand across the the plastic sheeting yeah that's there you know she's really not supposed to do that to her stomach when she is pregnant so this is the one of the things that i'm a little bit uncomfortable with the show's portrayal of radioactivity right radiation is not contagious yeah and that's kind of the implication here at least someone could take that away and i think it's really dangerous because people who suffered like hibakusha from from hiroshima and nagasaki they were treated like they were mutants that were lepers they were treated well, like and the lepers. nurse says well she he's not your husband anymore and right. that kind of he's not that he's human. a dangerous weapon yep. and in the same thing with fukushima that same kind of situation happens if you remove the radioactive sources from someone's body you wash off their skin you remove the radioactive clothing most of the problem has been removed yep of course there you could say like well if they ingested beta particles or if they had some cesium in them or something or maybe if a gamma emitting source could be injected through, but that's it's a very small problem. Yeah. They're, unless it's a gamma source. Right. If it's a gamma source, you shouldn't let anybody get near them at all. Plastic exactly. sheets not going to help you. Yeah. Those plastic sheets are meant to because the person has an immune system that's collapsing. It's to protect them from you. Yep. Not you from them. It's a very powerful scene, but I think it does imply a few things. That's one of the few places where the show 
to me, very few, and I trust me, as someone who watches these things a lot and complains about everything, Jeff and I are going to do an episode on Godzilla, yeah. and I'm going to have some some things to say. But this show does not have most of those problems, and overall, it's really perfect. It's Neither perfect. does Godzilla, though, to be perfectly honest. Right, right, right. Because Godzilla um, had, is real. I had this theory that the shark from Jaws was actually a Godzilla-type monster because he was swimming around where, like, Bikini Atoll. You listen to that episode of our podcast, and I'll get into it. <laughs> we try to figure out what's what's going to happen, and what, and not only what's going to happen to these people, but at the hospital, we try to figure out what had happened. So Ulana is on the case. She is a researcher now being tasked with trying to find out what happened. Mm-hmm. She goes to talk to Vyatlov. He will not talk to her at all. He won't even, given the, a picture of the reactor core exploded. He denies, wow. yeah. Like, you're really good at Photoshop, right? He doesn't He doesn't even acknowledge it. But he, she does talk with the other two plant workers and finds out, you know, a lot of things. One, that he's the chief control reactor engineer yeah. at the age of 26. Yep. Two months on the job. He, they learned that this mysterious button, you know, you have a podcast about buttons. We talk about red atomic buttons all the time. Yeah. We learned this button, this mysterious button, AZ5, yeah. was pushed, and it's a shutdown button. But still, to fight this shutdown button being pushed, the expl- that's when the explosion happened. Right. right. That, that line that Jeff mentioned, I did everything right, I did yeah. everything right, mm-hmm. gets repeated by the people over and over again. Ulana, like, screams at Ludmilla for being near... This radioactive monster, according to the way the, the, the she thinks about it, mm-hmm. the husband, and says, look, you have to get away. You're, you're pregnant. Uh, and then she gets pulled. People are going to find out. Yeah. A KGB agent has been following oh, yeah. her and pulls her away and arrests her. And then we see another scene where the families of those that died at the reactor and the firefighters, we watch them be burying their loved ones in special coffins made... Uh, and soldered. Covered in concrete. Yeah, one of the most haunting scenes, yeah. I think, in the whole show. And they make a really good point of showing the, ra- the the normal people cemetery and then the one that's further away. And that did happen in real life, which yeah. is crazy to think about. So the fire is out. The meltdown has been prevented. Things, like, looking pretty good. Gorbachev's like, all right, time to get back to uh, doing some more nuclear arms control summits with, with Reagan. You can start getting back to their whatever five-year plan they happen to be on uh, at the time. But no, Lagasov is kind of a downer. Uh, and he says, no, we're about to enter a long war. Professor Lagasov will now speak about the work that remains. Deputy Chairman Shabina has given you the good news, and it is good. Now I'm afraid a long war must begin. There is an enormous amount of radioactive debris and contamination spread out across a zone of approximately 2,600 square kilometers. This entire region must be completely evacuated. All animals still surviving within the zone must be presumed contaminated and will have to be destroyed. Uh, Every rock, every tree the very ground itself has absorbed a dangerous amount of radionuclides which will be carried by the wind and the rain if left exposed so we will have to raise entire forests we will have to rip up the top layer of earth and bury it under itself Um, and finally we will need to construct a containment structure around the power plant itself which will of course still be extremely there will be deaths what amount of time how many men do you require? We expect this liquidation effort to take three years and approximately 750,000 men. How many deaths? Thousands. Perhaps tens of thousands. 
with 750,000 workers that are going to be needed for this this process. And they're not going to volunteer. You're going to have to conscript them. Many of them were conscripted from uh, right off the lines of Afghanistan. Yep. Yeah. And then other ones were civilians. Yep. Right. They um, conscripted over like 660,000 people. And teenagers, I mean. And these workers... And this is not meant to be like a euphemism. I think this is a meant. This is a, just a translated term. Yes. Liquidators. Mm-hmm. And what's what's the term in in Russian? Liquidatory. Oh. We're going to liquidate the problem. Right? Yeah, it's not liquefy like, anything, yeah. but just yep. Clean yeah. up it's not the terminate. Yeah. Like a terminator. It's but except it, for the pets. Right, but it becomes this. It it like it sounds really ominous. Yeah. And it and like I almost ironically takes on that. Yeah. character like like we're gonna liquidate this problem and then these guys become the liquidators yeah, yeah. yep liquidators sounds like a really bad show on hgtv um, <laughs> i'd probably watch it <laughs> and then we get a few more scenes before this episode ends uh, there's a conversation between lagosov and I, a character i really like um not a real person but he's he's meant to represent the kgb he's like the kgb i think deputy chairman and lagosov once ulana released and he, he releases them because as long as she doesn't talk, it's not a problem because they also want information. You know, one of the things that this, the, the show kind of hides a little bit, um, but it's for dramatic effect, is almost immediately there was a huge investigation with hundreds of scientists that were talking to people, interviewing people. The Russian party leadership wanted the answers. They just didn't want anybody to know the answers, but they wanted the answers themselves. Um, so Alana gets was released. The KGB has this the a guy has this really f- creative line um, oh that, that that Craig Mason wrote, where he says the KGB is a circle of accountability. I have someone watching me. They have someone watching them. Uh, everything is just fine. Ronald Reagan thinks he invented the term trust but verify, but that's our we thing. Did. Yeah, it's yeah. a Russian thing. Oh, and, and, and where do we hear the, the term trust but verify in our field? Arms control training. Yeah, but well, Iran they, most recently, right? Yeah, yeah, it's brought up again. Yeah. yeah. Um, I wrote my grad school thesis on if you can negotiate arms control agreements that don't necessarily have verification. Did you learn how to say it in Russian? Uh, you know, that never came up. Okay. Never came up. <laughs> I'm not sure I didn't. But so then there's this really great scene uh, from with Ulana and Lagasov in a mm. prison cell before she's released. And of course, this is a real KGB prison cell that they filmed in Lithuania. That's um, pretty cool. They're compelled to solve the problem. They they know that it's in their safety to stop asking these yeah. questions, but they need to go after the truth. And Ulana has this line that she says to Lagasov, like, look, they both said, and I believe them, that they pushed the shutdown button, but the problem still happened. And you see a quick little, like, glint in, in Lagasov's eyes. He seems to recall something. He seems to recall, like, something he may know about, yeah. oh, no. But he doesn't say, like, hey, I know this would happen. But he says, pursue the truth. He trusts her and, and tasks right. her with finding the information. These characters are kind of like the... Um morality police for lack of better yeah. words in my mind right now for the show yeah and it's uh, yeah i think the the co-host of the podcast john siegel says at one point this is where you make your thematic statement for the the yeah. show this is where you're trying to say something about the pursuit of truth and things along those lines well they succeeded the next pursuit we see in episode four is the the pursuit of the the happiness of oh, all mankind yeah which is the name of the next episode. Yeah. Um, this scene starts with a another character from Game of Thrones. Pip, one of the Night's Watch people. 
He is the guy. I thought I recognized him. He is a Russian soldier who is a relatively younger gentleman, and he is trying to get this older lady to leave her farm, and she's actively milking a cow. And he says, you have to leave. Yeah, it's, it's really their bad. duty. But what, is, what does she say? She's like, I've been here yeah. through the revolution. I've been here through the, oh, Holodomor, which is like the the cold, basically the famine that happened hmm. under Stalin. And my family has never left. And I made it through that. And then my brother died and my father died. And I'm still here. I'm not leaving. And that's, I mean... She just keeps milking the cow. Kudos to her. Because she's also, she said that she was 80-something. So, you know, she was thinking, I'm going to die here. It's fine. And how does he get her to leave? Well, he pulls out the gun. And he cocks it. And he's ready to shoot. He pulls the trigger and shoots the cow. Yep. And she just sits there. And I think the implication is, is that she gets on the truck. You know, I hope so. But who knows, right? Yeah. That's how we start these episodes. Yeah. They, they have Jeez. really good starts and really good endings. Yeah. We're, we're four months now after the accident. Time is, is moving forward. This episode that we're recording here, it seems like it's going on forever. But in the show, time is progressing forward. Uh, Ludmilla is given a new place to live. She's, she's, she's still very much in shock, but she's, mm-hmm. still, she's still pregnant. Yep. And she's showing a lot more. We eventually find out that she does... Later on, nine months later, you know, nine months through the whole process. Yeah. Uh, she gives birth. She goes into labor. But the child only lives for what they say, four, four, hours. four hours. Yeah. This is another one of those moments where I, I did not like the way that the show talked about this. But I think I understand why. They say that Ulana says. She gave birth. A girl. The baby lived for four hours. They said the radiation would have killed the mother, but the baby absorbed it instead. Her baby. We live in a country where children have to die to save their mothers. According to a book that I think you're going to recommend at the end of the show, so I'm not going to get into it too much, but it's an amazing book from everything I've been counted, Voices of Chernobyl, right? Yeah, Chernobyl, yeah, yeah. Or Chernobyl (laughs) Prayer. There are, this account is from Ludmilla. So I just want people to listen to this to know that that is not in fact in reality probably what happened right do i want to tell this woman that this is what happened no i have no interest in telling her that the baby didn't actually absorb radiation and that's why the woman is alive today i don't i don't have no interest in doing that certainly the child probably died because uh radioactive particles went through the mother's bloodstream and i think they said that the child was all kinds of different things i just don't understand like this the science of the baby absorbing it all and that's why she's surviving the radioactive sources in the child would still be damaging her. Yep. And it's not, it's one of those things because of the fact that it is the story that, that she tells, it's a powerful story. Right. Um, yeah. I just wish the show was a little bit clearer that this wasn't a magic radiation absorbing baby. Yeah. This was something that really that's happened. That's what and we're here for. And that's what her story, exactly. And that's what her, but that's what the story that she has. Yeah. And if that's the narrative that, that's important to her and that's the way that she thinks about these things, that's, you have to, res- you respect that. As long as you don't make decisions based off of that about how radiation works with the body. Right. Uh, so in this long, long war that we see, we see scenes mm. with the workers looking for radioactive materials. And uh, a, it's a very powerful scene. They find like a radioactive bicycle. The bike, yeah. You see them tilling soil. I did love that scene. That was really powerful because that was part of the trailer where you see the trucks driving through the yeah. city spraying and spraying down the radioactivity. 
basically. It's very powerful stuff. There's lots of stuff that we can get into. We can get into the whole scenes where Lagasov, Boris, and General uh, Tark Tarakanov sounds like uh, like General Tarkin from Star Wars, <laughs> but maybe that's how you pronounce it. I like that one better. Thank you. So uh, another Game of Thrones actor. He is the guy who's with Theon and betrays him at Winterfell. He's one of the Ironborn. He's also one of my favorite actors in a lot of. He's in a, he's in the uh, original British Office. Uh, we can we can get into the whole scene where they decide that they, one of the things they have to do is they have to get the actual graphite radioactive material off of the roof. That was stressful. Yeah. That was really stressful. And they, they have to get the they have to get it off the roof and they use robots. First they use actual robots, but the robots break down. Well, and they use that the German robot. The the West German robot. The key thing right there is West German. Yes, West German. They ask for permission. They had to tell someone about this in order to get it. But Jeff, the the German West German robot what they call the Joker. It's essentially like a police robot with so much like heavy shielding and stuff. It immediately breaks. Yeah. Why does it immediately break? Just all the radiation burns out all the circuits on it is what it is, is what happens, right? Right. But they, they, because the Russians did not tell the West Germans the actual radioactive oh, levels. They gave them, I think Boris has this wonderful line where he says, you gave them the propaganda number. Yeah. And then I think he breaks a phone. Yeah, he says, We're lo- yeah right. <laughs> and he walks out and he says, it's not possible to have a global nuclear catastrophe in the Soviet Union. You know, um, but right. They they told them, oh, it's, you know, a couple hundred rotogen, right? Yeah. So the people that they're looking for help from, they lie to. Yep. And so the equipment that they're given doesn't work. And this puts every time this puts someone's lives at risk. And ultimately, what they decide to use is a term that I thought was a joke, but it was really what they called it: bio robots. Yeah, which are people. Yeah. And 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 I love he brings it up. Well, we'll have to use biological robots. Yeah. And he says, "What do you mean? What are those?" He says, "Humans." You know. And they they've determined that the quote unquote safe thing would be if they you line somebody with with lead, uh, and you put a mask on their face and you give them rubber boots. They can last 90 seconds. Yeah. And the thing that I didn't realize until I was reading one of the stories, or I think it was, I can't tell if a lot of the stuff's all blending together, if it was in the book yeah, or if it was or in the an podcast. Article or a, yeah. But the people had to make their own suits. Suits. Yep. They didn't have suits for them. So they, they made suits by stripping. I'm sure that metal. worked really well. And there's an amazing one shot scene. They, they run through one of these things. It's yeah. 90 seconds. It's, it's a full real time shot yep. of people wearing these suits, which is terrifying by itself. And they get shovels, and they're told to go up and shovel whatever you can for 90 seconds. And- you will enter reactor building three. Climb the stairs, but do not immediately proceed to the roof. When you get to the top, wait inside behind the entrance to the roof and catch your breath. You will need it for what comes next. These are the most important 90 seconds of your lives. Commit your task to memory, then do your job. Ready. What's the guy? I think he gets like two small pieces. And, and they're not helps. light by any means. No, and he, then he gets like two people have to lift one of them. Yep. And then the, the bell rings, they try to get back, and his foot gets stuck. And one guy gets stuck. And it's, they don't say what happens to him, but I think Comrade Soldier 
doesn't make he it. He doesn't make it. And it's also, keep in mind that they are put on the roof of Masha, which is the most deadly of them all. So the three roofs, what do we, we, we got some three names here. We have Katya, Nina, and Masha. And, I mean, it, this is not in the show, but... They were, I like that they were named after the military commander's nieces. Yeah, in the show, they describe the names to the commander, but in real life, like, the right. commander had been there the whole time. Right. Um, but anyways, it, it's a great scene. It's a good way of describing it. Um, well, one thing that I think is just so amazing to think about, these people were conscripted thousands of miles away, put on a bus or a train, brought there, suited up, given this these orders, put through the the ringer for 90 seconds of threatening conditions given some money and sent home yep because that is the all they can do yep we we do have one scene and this is going to be really difficult to get through i think it's worth talking about because it does this, this is, is the scene that i cried in i uh, will admit we meet one of these recruits we meet one of these liquidators a conscripted person who was formerly a non-military individual pavel he wasn't that old person. he's so young uh, I don't think he's from Game of Thrones, so he's one of the few that's not. Um, but he he is in Dunkirk, however. Oh, uh, okay. Of course, he'd know yeah. that. Uh, so he is tasked with what team, Jeff? Animal control. <sighs> oh, so he so he's a wrangler. He he puts a he puts a leash on them and he brings them and they they bring them to a shelter. What do you mean by animal control? Uh, he's given a rifle and he's sent out to liquidate, just like they say, all of every single animal within the exclusion zone needs to be put down. All the pets. Yeah, every pets. every animal, every yeah. piece of livestock, everything that they can get their hands on that could possibly track radionuclides around. And it's devastating. The, they spend their entire days going out and shooting dogs is basically what it, shooting pets. They whistle. Yeah. They dogs whistle. come. Because yeah. they don't, they're not scared of people. Right. No. And in fact, they're they're hoping that people will come and help them. Yeah. And, um, and there's this great scene where he's just shook, right? He's sitting there. He's Pavel? Cr- yeah, Pavel, yeah. he's crying. And um, the two guys that are with him are these Afghanistan vets, right? And they've the, seen some stuff. Yeah, yeah. They've, they've been through hell, right? And the one guy, the older vet, the sergeant, looks at him and he says- Bacho. Sa- yeah. Oh, I love Bacho. That. And he says- he says, it's the same for everyone. This happened to me the first time I killed a man, right? It's just a little bit for different you, for dog. you. Yeah, for you, it's a dog. Um, and and it's interesting because because it harkens back to that line that Valeri says, this is the long war, uh-huh. right? And they equate it to war. For, for them, it's an even, it's the, Afghanistan is the same war. thing for yeah. them. And there's this powerful scene where the other guy who's with them, like, toasts during lunch and he points to a banner that is hanging down. It's like the banner from Jurassic Park that says, mm-hmm. uh, you know, when dinosaurs ruled, ruled the, the earth, earth and it's yeah. kind of falling down. This thing, which at one point was probably uh, a rallying cry, a, a sense yes. of pride, which said the happiness of all mankind. Yeah. And of course, as this is happening, they're, they're killing dogs and people's pets. And it's, it's a source of happiness for a great number of people. Right. My other favorite moment from this particular series in in the episode is they're walking through this this giant camp, right? For these six hundred thousand conscripties, mm-hmm. right? And uh, and the Afghanistan vet Bacho walks up to this one guy and says, "You see this kid? He's with me. You don't mess with him, you know." And then he says, "Give me that egg basket, right?" And he yeah. says, "No, no. What the hell? You didn't give it to me." 
and it's this giant piece of lead that's been hammered into a girdle to protect them from radiation to their testicles, right? And um, and it comes back to Boris later, and and Valerian, they're like, seriously, they're stripping lead out of Reactor Three, you know? And like it's like like you're talking about how they had to make their own yeah. suits. These guys are afraid that they're going to become infertile, right? And uh, Craig Mason in the podcast, he was like. I would talk to one of these guys who was doing this, and he said, "Make sure you include this scene yeah. in this." Well, it's like like Jeez. these guys are forced upon these like horrendous situations yep. with no understanding of what's going on, so they have to take matters in their own hands to keep themselves safe, and and this is how they do it, right? Um, here's a quote from uh, what would you say this guy's name is? Victor. Oh. Verzhikovsky. That's a hard one. Thank you. There we go. Verzhikovsky. He's the chairman of a society of volunteer <laughs> hunters and fishermen. Um, yes. And here's a quote from him because he was one of the people that was in charge of this liquidation animal control effort. So plug your ears if you don't want to hear this. The first time we came, the dogs were running around their houses, guarding them, waiting for people to come back. They were happy to see us. They ran towards our voices. We shot them in the houses and the barns and in the yards. We dragged them out onto the street and load them into the dump truck. It wasn't very nice. They couldn't understand it. Why are we hurting them? Why are we killing them? They were easy to kill. They were household pets. They did not fear guns or people. Now we drink. Uh, it's very sad. I, th- I think the the way the the, the book just Midnight in Chernobyl describes it is the major concern people had was um, was people was dogs being rabid uh, and having diseases because no one was taking care of them. But also their fur is lined with radioactive dust particles, and there's no way that they'd be able to deal with them. Now, of course, I, if you wanted to call this a a, a positive thing, um, many dogs did not get killed in the course of this operation. Many of them escaped. Many of them still live today and you can donate there are there are societies out there animal societies that you can donate money and you can help um provide homes for like the descendants of the dogs that were around there because there's still quite a number of dogs in the exclusion zone many of them made it out a lot of the people uh, who were at these camps that jeff mentioned fed the dogs throughout the course of this thing because either they weren't told that that was a thing that you couldn't do or you know what they didn't care they weren't going to, not all of them were as yeah. hardened or interested in shooting dogs um, as their, their mission entailed it. Right. And wherever humans and especially wherever soldiers go, they find a way to bring dogs along with them. You it's- hear so many of those stories. You even hear stories about dogs and cats from Syria, from a oh, lot yeah. of the places in Syria. I have a Syria. lot of friends that are from are in Afghanistan and they bring a dog back. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So now we, we go back to a less sad scene, um, but Olana is in a library. And she tries to uh, get some highly restricted documents. She tries to, quote, unquote, like FOIA a document, uh, but she only gets one out of the many that she's requested. And she eventually kind of finds out a little bit more about the problems of the RBMK reactor system and that people have been writing about this stuff. And she she confronts Boris and Lagasa with this information. Mm-hmm. She says, look, you're going to go to Vienna in the next couple of weeks. You're going to go to the IEA. You're going to present to the world what happened. You have the opportunity to tell the truth. Which you should. The real truth, not the Soviet truth. And Boris pushes back and says, look, I've known braver men than you. And when they are presented with this choice of a bullet or the truth, they tell the truth that the government 
But then when Juliana presents this document to Legasov, he admits, look, in Leningrad, a couple years ago, we went through a similar situation when the reactor was working at low power. The They pushed the shutoff button mm-hmm. and a minor like surge yeah. of power yeah. happened. Uh, in real life, that was a, that actual problem. And there was uh, some radiation leakage and things, but nothing exploded. But it was a surge of power and they didn't know what was happening. But they knew this was a thing. Essentially, Legasov says that, look, the staff pushed the button because they did not know, did not know this because it was classified by the KGB to be a secret. And that's kind of where we get into this whole debate about whether or not to tell the truth. And that's where the episode ends. Right. And so that leads over into the final episode, right, which is the trial. And it's where we finally come to understand what happened that night. And this, the key crux of this that I think is important to break down is, like you said, is this one fundamental lie, yeah. right? And it, there's two parts to it. The first is is structural, right? It's an engineering problem. In every single nuclear reactor in the world, there is a scram button. Scram. Or scram. Which job is to immediately scramble the control rods back into the reactor core and to shut down reactivity. Keyword immediately. Yeah, right. immediate. I mean, yes, in a Western reactor, it's immediate. Right. But, but in the Soviet reactor, as part of this uh, conservation of energy, principle of design, economics of design, mm-hmm. um, it, they didn't want to, for a multiple set of reasons. They, they didn't, didn't want to mess up the, the power grid. Right. Immediately going from power to no power. Right. And it's also part of this positive void problem that they had where that if all of a sudden you shut off reactivity or if the power goes down, which is what they were testing on the night of the explosion, yeah. uh, they didn't want to run out of water and then everything would go wrong. Um, so there was actually a delay built into the Soviet scram button of like 16 seconds, 18 seconds. It was 18 to 21 seconds. Right. Was what it was programmed to do automatically. Right. You push that button, it doesn't go, whoop, and then done. Right. It is like a control. It doesn't fall by gravity. It, oh, it, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Which... 18... Under normal circumstances, it's fine. Right. When right. the power is, when the power of the reactor is high, still pumping we'll water lines. into yeah. it. Yeah. And the tips of the rods are graphite. Right, but they, uh, but it takes eighteen seconds, which in nuclear uh, physics is a lifetime. Yep. Right. The second problem is that it was another lie. Right. They knew it was a problem, right. but they didn't tell any of the nuclear engineers that were working in this place that it was a problem. Well, let, let's get into the trial because then we'll learn. That's how we learn how the, all this yeah. stuff happens. So episode five, which is beautifully named. And since it's in Russian, I'm not going to, to try to name it. Uh, what is it and what does it mean in Russian? It, well, so it's Vyachnaya Pamyat, which means memory eternal or eternal memory, which is very Russian Orthodox. It's It's spoken. It's kind of a... A chant? A chant, if you will, yeah. Monty Python when the monks chant. Um, mm. But at the end of a, a memorial or a funeral. So it's it's remembering all those who mm. have died. Um, and it actually has been put beautifully into song. I'll put a link to the, the one it's that you sent, you sent me on, on YouTube. Yeah. We'll put a link to that in the show notes because it is, it is very powerful. Yeah, and it, it, it really... The words just kind of the the title of the episode is very telling of the whole episode. Well, it's called Memory Internal, and it's something that is sung right at a at a funeral. But we a funeral of what? Well, we find out. Uh, the show, its episode opens twelve hours before 
the reactor accident, and we see life in um, in, in Pripyat, uh very happy. Like it's a beautiful day. People are holding babies. They're swimming at the pool. Very happy. We see Ludmilla and Vaseli. Vaseli's holding a baby, and she's probably thinking about they're about to start a family. Right. We start to figure out, and we learn why they're even doing anything that could cause a problem later that night. So Dyatlov is told by other people that they should not run what they call a safety test. And I think something is important here is Victor is a guy who is itching for a promotion. He mm-hmm. wants to become party guy in Moscow and wants, yep. to, wants to get promoted. In Reactor 4, they had to hit a deadline. And the important thing here was to meet a deadline before May Day. Yes. Right? A, a, na- a big national holiday yes. essentially is the equivalent of like Labor Day. Yeah. Yep. It's a huge celebration. And the way he was able to, to meet this particular deadline was that he... Just they they weren't able to do this one safety test. So they just said, can I get permission to postpone it till later? And they did. And it got postponed for two years. The was like the one thing holding him back from promotion Mm -hmm. was to get this test done. And the test was in the event of power loss from outside the plant, power that, that runs the water cooling tanks and everything. If everything gets shut down, will there be a meltdown? They thought, no, we have uh, backup generators that take X amount of time to turn on. And while that's happening, we think if you jerry-rig a turbine, yeah, to, the turbine to generate power for the water coolant, that will bridge the gap. So they wanted to test that. The way they would test that is they would drop the reactor to 700 megawatts. Mm-hmm. That measures pretty close to what's happening. And 700 megawatts is low, but it's it's a, it's it's a safe. It's stable. Right. Um, so they that was the test. And they wanted to do the test earlier in the day with the day shift, the good... I want to say the the the, the A team, basically. Yeah, they don't put A teams on for overnight shift because it was also uh, this day was right before a quota for industry people to meet yeah. their deadlines. What do they do? They said don't run the don't run this test, which would shut the power down lower until after nine p.m. Yeah, which meant that they couldn't start the test until one thirty right or so in the morning. Yep. What does the outlaw say? Um, look, we'll run this test. We can do it. We just yeah. do it later in the evening. Dyatlov is pissed because he doesn't want to work that late. Right. He doesn't want to work overnight. Right. No one's happy about this, but Foman, he wants a promotion. He's like the deputy plant director, basically. He'll get uh, Victor's job if Victor gets promoted. And Dyatlov, who wants to get out of a reactor, mm-hmm. he'll get Foman's job. Yeah. So it's this like musical chairs game. And that's kind of why we are faced with this situation. And the, the other thing that the show doesn't mention is if they don't do the test that night, they have to wait another year. Because they right. scheduled this test for when the reactor was going to be shut down anyways for maintenance, which happens once a year when they refuel everything. Right. And I think there's two really important things here that you touched on. First is that they're going to run the reactor at low power. And as we find out, for a whole bunch of really complex reasons, RBMKs are at their most unstable when running at low power. And there's this great quote in Midnight in Chernobyl when they said, that during these sorts of situations, the plant technicians are running more by gut instinct than yeah. what instruments are telling them, right? And that's exactly what you want to be doing. Right. Yeah. yeah. Right. The second thing that you said is that is incredibly important is that all these guys don't even know that this test is coming. 
Yep. Right. The night shift doesn't know. Right. Right. This is one of the things that I think is interesting is this is it's not a research reactor, but it's almost like a teaching reactor. Right. <laughs> yeah. So there's all these like like Toptonov is like 25, 26 years old. Right. Two months on the job. This is his he's supposed to be there to learn from Akimov and just sort of get a feel for it. Mm-hmm. Now you have a guy with two months experience who has to run the reactor by experience and feel and not what yeah. the instruments are telling him. They have no understanding of what's going on, and they have no protocols to f- with which to follow that they're familiar with. Right. We learn all this information because there's a trial, and because of the weird quirks of the Soviet legal system, it has to take place roughly in the same area where the crime took place, so mm-hmm. they go to the town of Chernobyl. The interesting thing that the book tells us is that Midnight in Chernobyl is that Gorbachev has already said what's going to happen to Dyatlov and to Victor and to Fomin. He already says like, you're going to go to jail for this amount of time. uh, But we still have to have a trial. Yeah. Uh, Essentially a a show trial. Yeah. But Legasov is also showing signs of radiation sickness. His hair is starting to fall out. Oh yeah. He knows his time on this world is not long. And Alana tries to tell him, look, if we had to get one thing out of this, it's to get these reactors fixed. Look, we're not going to take down the state. They're not even interested in that. They want, the reactors to be fixed because there are a number still today yep. operating reactors of the RBMK model. So they want this stuff to get done. And they're like, Olana says, the only way you're going to get this done is if you tell the truth in front of the scientific community that it's going to be at the trial. With, what does she call them? Like the real jurors. Yeah. Uh, Ossoff doesn't think that this is going to work. That this, that, like, wh- why would I risk my life for something that's probably not going to cause any sort of solution for the, for the reactors? And Ilana says, look, the real heroes of Chernobyl have already given their lives. It's can you step up to the plate and and, and give yours, too. We're in the city of Chernobyl. It's July now of 1987 and it's trial day. We see this quick shot of lines and lines of trucks and construction equipment that's just been abandoned. You can still see videos of those things that are still there, including Joker, the West German yeah. police bulldozer is still there. Their stuff is still pretty radioactive. And the trial gets underway by another Game of Thrones person, the actor that plays Ruth Bolton, the warden of the prosecution. The Central Committee of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union and the Presidium of the Supreme Soviet of the USSR has determined that justice be carried out on behalf of the people in accordance with the general goal of our party, as determined by its 20th, 21st, and 22nd Congresses. The path of Leninist principles shall be consistently and undeviatingly followed, as it expresses the vital interests of the Soviet people its hopes and aspirations as we guide the life of the party and state. This session of court is now open. Indictments. Victor Brokhanov, Anatoly Dyatlov, Nikolai Fermin are accused of violating Article 220, Section 2 of the Criminal Code of the Soviet Union, resulting in a nuclear disaster on April 26, 1986. And he's really the guy in charge. Weirdly enough, he outranks the judge. Mm-hmm. And we get a couple different types of testimony. Jeff, why don't you tell us what Boris testifies? Right. So Boris testifies as to the managerial failure, right? He says that these are men that were looking for promotion and were willing to, to put people at risk to do right. it. Uh, and specifically that um, they had lied about conducting this test, right? They said that it had passed back when the reactor first went online two years previously, mm-hmm. but they never actually did it. And so they put humans at risk in name of their own 
you know, and, and yeah. very capitalist sort of own self-preservation versus the betterment of the state, right? Yep. And then Ulana, it's her turn. She testifies that a shift change happened at midnight, which brought on new staff who didn't understand the test. And this is where I think the show shines in its final episode. We get flashbacks. We get flashbacks to the room, the reactor room, as this stuff is happening. And we get scenes of Dyatlov essentially bullying, yelling. Yeah. They're reading the the, the, uh, the instructions, and they're like, wait, some of these things are crossed out. Does that mean that we follow them or we don't follow them? And right? then they're told to follow them. Yeah. The Dyatlov is like, he's got a movie to see. He's got theater tickets yeah. or something. And, and he yeah, just needs to go. rush. He says, he says, what I say is the expert opinion. Uh, you listen to what I you know, tell you to. Which is based on his culture of working previously in military facilities. Right. Um, he, he worked potentially with military discipline and did not like it so much when people questioned him. Right. They're not even given the opportunity to read the instructions. Tuparov makes a mistake. He needs to drop the power. And he is like, mm, okay, I'm going to take the reactor uh, boron control rods. They are currently set. He, trains, he moves it from manual control, uh, what they call local manual, I think, yeah. uh, to global automatic. Oh he forgot to program what it should go to. So it goes to the what was previously set to, which was near zero, because yeah. that's what they were trying to get to, right. uh, to, sh to shut, to shut down. down the reaction. And immediately, he doesn't understand why, the boron control rods get dropped down. So they, they cause a, a drop in reactivity. Right. And and then the critical thing that is happening here chemically... That it goes subcritical. Huh? Right. Huh? Ah. I can make those jokes super critical, critical, and then subcritical. Now I'm done. I can't make any more. But it starts to build up xenon gas yeah. in the reactor, which is another nuclear moderator. Yeah, right. It, it's, it, it kills neutrons. Right. It kills neutrons. And they say it's poisoning the reactor. And the reactor gets stalled, and they don't know why. And the longer it becomes stalled, and it, again, this junior person who's the senior, junior person in reality, but called the senior control engineer, he doesn't make a quick enough action. If you were operating this safely, you would shut the reactor down. Yeah. But they still want to run the test. Right. And they take a long time to very carefully bring the power back up. And I think they bring it back up to 200 megawatts. Yeah. The test says that it is only going to produce good data at 700 but Dyatlov says, screw it. <laughs> I'm going to do this. The key thing is that the way that they bring the power back up is more than they should. They pull the boron control rods. Right. Yeah. They pull 211 out of 217 yeah. control rods out. That is super unsafe. Yeah. It's incredibly unsafe. And just like we've said previously, these reactors are so large that you don't actually know what's going on inside yeah. them. So now they've taken all of the safeties off, right? There's nothing to prevent this thing from going super critical. Oh. Uh -huh. So the, yeah, the, there's still water in the reactor, which is moderating things. There's still the graphite, but it's causing the reactor is, but it's not moving because there's not enough reactivity And at happening. the same time, they've shut off the outside power, which is going to potentially stop the flow of water into the reactor. Yeah. And so it's this, it's this chain reaction, and it's terrifying. And then um, our hero... Uh, testifies, uh, Legasov. And uh, you really like this scene. I love this. Yeah, so he's in front of, you know, the party and his colleagues testifying, and he has these tablets that are basically showing what's happening inside of the reactor. And this is where we previously talked about the positive co void coefficient. When all of this is happening, eventually all of the water dissipates, 
and then all of the xenon dissipates. And so he takes off that whole side of, of tablet, which I think is blue, which is a nicer, a nicer mm-hmm. color. And all the red is left. So all the dangerous stuff. And that's the negative void coefficient. And so, that's so red is, I think, means that it, when those get put into it, that reactivity increases. increases. And then blue is decreases. Yes. I think so. Yeah. 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 Because yeah. water and, and, and those types of uh, materials are the ones that balance out the reactivity. Mm-hmm. Basically flips like the, the mm-hmm. negative void coefficient and it's still just as dangerous. This is the invisible dance that powers entire cities without smoke or flame. And it is beautiful when things are normal. Clearly, things aren't normal. In our, our BMK reactors, we mentioned the first one of these when it was built in Leningrad in 1973, this positive void coefficient was super hard to control this whole system. But everything seems at this point, it's it's the party line. He hasn't really gotten into that it's a problem with the reactor design. It's just the people didn't understand how to work this thing. The idiots in the control room weren't following what's going on. Our friend Boris starts coughing pretty much uncontrollably. Um, Bruce Bolton is nice enough to give a little bit of a recess. And Boris and Lagasov have this really uh, terrific line uh, back and forth where like, Boris is like, look, they put me in charge of this because they didn't think I'd be able to do anything. They thought it was not actually a problem. They thought it was a roof fire. That's why they appointed me. Right. And he says, the thing that I love is he says, I didn't think that this was serious. He says, because when they sent me here, they sent me an inconsequential man. How bad could it be, right? Yeah. And Lagasa tries to, you know, say, hey, buck her up there, buddy. Right. He says, you actually did amazing things here. Yeah, he says, as the party man, you were the guy that could get us the equipment. You got us the men that we needed. the most important man. Yeah, yeah. You were not an inconsequential man. You were the most important man. And this inspires Lagasa to speak truth to power. Bruce is trying to wrap stuff up, uh, but Boris says, you know what? No. Let him talk. And he tells the full story. The story about how the fact that all these control rods, yeah, they were out of the reactor. Sure, there was xenon gas. And they could have done some things differently. But the reactor is designed wrong. And we get these flashbacks. Everyone is telling Dyatlov to stop the test. Um, we get the situation basically where the water has all burned off because of the, the heat from the reactor is happening. The water is essentially steam, or at least there are bubbles mm-hmm. that are happening there, which means that those where those bubbles are at... The water is not moderating the re- the neutrons, and those neutrons are firing faster because there's no longer the boron control rods to stop this thing. There's a power surge that happens, and there's like almost an explosion, right? So what happens? They push the AZ-5 shutdown button. At 1.2340, Akimov engages AZ-5. The fully withdrawn control rods begin moving back into the reactor. These rods are made of boron, which reduces reactivity, but not the tips. The tips are made of graphite, which accelerates reactivity. Why? For the same reason, we are the only nation that builds water-cooled, graphite-moderated reactors with a positive void coefficient. It's cheaper. The boron rods had graphite tips at the end of them. And the reason is, is because we talked about this. When the reactor rods are pulled, the boron rods are pulled all the way up into the reactor. If there was just boron tips at the end of them, any neutron that would hit them would be lost. Mm -hmm. And that way you would lose neutrons. And they wanted to make this thing cheap. Now, if you put a graphite rod into a very high 
working reactor, it's not, it's a marginal increase in moderated reactivity, right? You introduce that into a system where it's low power and there's just waiting for something to start this process and you slow it 18 to 21 seconds before it goes down. There's so much reactivity on the bottom of the of the reactor core once those rods get put into it. That is a really bad right. place for this to be. The control rods make it about a third to half the way back into the core. Mm-hmm. So there are catalyzing graphite tips in the most reactive part of the core that get stuck there and then immediately cause this chain reaction of breached uh, moderating tubes and causes a, a chain th- a steam explosion, right? Lagasov, what he testifies is what he shouldn't be saying, that the USSR leadership and the scientific community not the engineers but some people in the scientific community knew that this would happen if you operate the reactor to the point of like the brink really low power this could happen reactor 4 designed to operate at 3200 megawatts went beyond 33,000. the pressure inside the core can no longer be held back at long last we have arrived 12345 explosion. No one in the room that night knew the shutdown button could act as a detonator because it was kept from them. We were following orders from the KGB, from the Central Committee, and right now there are 16 reactors in the Soviet Union with the same fatal flaw. First the gas off if. You mean to suggest the Soviet state is somehow responsible for what happened, then I must warn you, you are treading on dangerous ground. I've already trod on dangerous ground. We're on dangerous ground right now because of our secrets and our lies. They're practically what define us. When the truth offends, we we lie and lie until we can no longer remember it is even there, but it is still there. Every lie we tell incurs a debt to the truth. Sooner or later, that debt is paid. That is how an RBMK reactor core explodes. Lies. Therefore, that through line, which I think at every point in every episode, more or less, there's some sort of a line about how can this happen? How can an RBMK reactor explode? It's lies. And I think uh, that's the... That's kind of how we almost, that's how we end the show. The only things that we, we learn is that like Legasov is threatened by the KGB. He essentially said, look, we're not going to shoot you because that would be embarrassing to us because you're this major celebrity now, but your entire career is over. Mm-hmm. You're not going to get promoted. No one's going to know that you did any of these things. You're, and you're essentially, you are a dying man that forgot his head. But we're treated to some epilogue, some photos and captions. Actually, during the epilogue, I'm pretty sure it's Vietnaya Pamyat that is playing. Okay, When well. the actual pictures of Pripyat are shown to the audience. Mm-hmm. And they kind of walk us through the life after. Who's put on trial... And three of them get the three that were on trial, Fomen, Dyatlov, and Obrukhanov. They get 10 years hard labor. Like Victor gets hard labor, but he leaves after three years because of health issues, apparently. Yeah. Um, Fomen tries to, before the trial happened, the reason why the trial was delayed is he tried to commit suicide by taking his glasses, breaking them, and trying to cut his wrist. He gets declared mental health issues. Insane. Insane. Yeah. 
and he goes into treatment. And then when he gets out of treatment, he gets in charge of another nuclear plant. Yep. Hooray. And I think that a lot of the storylines that we follow of the real characters are mm-hmm. actually more positive than I was expecting. Yeah. So like Ludmilla, she actually is alive yep. and has a kid. The divers that we talked about, they survived. Most of the miners are alive that, that were there. And even though the exclusion zone is still in effect and people are banned from going there, mm-hmm. it's it's better than I thought. And then there's also some some very sad takeaways too, right? Quarter of the 400 miners who dug the tunnel died or suffered shortened lifespans. Out of the 600,000 recruited to clean up, there's no official numbers on what happened. And, and it's part of this sort of diaspora that happens from Pripyat and Chernobyl. We don't really know what happens to a lot of these people. The 50,000 citizens are all spread out through the rest of the Soviet Union, right? And nobody keeps good records on sort of what happens here. Yeah. My favorite line is what the whole thing ends on. And the, to this day, the official Soviet death toll is 31 people, despite estimates of up to 40,000 people having right. died from yeah. this. They never really count the death of the liquidators. Right. Because those don't, those are something else. Right. They don't have a great estimate of the number of people that have, that received like thyroid. Sure. Cancer. And part of the problem is in the, the World Health Organization actually makes this case. There's no baseline. It, when there wasn't an accident, yeah. what was the cancer rates? So they had no way to compare it. But, but we do know that like incidences of childhood, like thyroid cancer went up extremely high, right? If you wanted to play devil's advocate, if you were someone on the other side, and I actually think this is a real question, thyroid rates were going up everywhere and a lot of it was because people were concerned about that that they they pinned it on chernobyl or they at least went in for testing and the more people being tested shows right there's more positive results but not necessarily more actual right cases and just like you said though you know how many cases of thyroid cancer in sweden and east germany and stuff can you attribute to chernobyl versus what was just a baseline anyways and we'll never know there are some changes that are made to the RBMK reactors. Instead of it being when you scram it from 18 to 21 seconds, they dropped it to 12. So it's still not great. Right. But <laughs> it's something. But reduced. The, they gave it more margin for the positive steam void coefficient. Mm-hmm. They installed what they called uh, uh, fast, installed fast acting emergency protection systems. So they were control rods that were not able to be controlled by the, the, the engineers. I think they were just like things that automatically yeah. what happened. Apparently they... They changed the design, the, the control rod layout with uh, longer boron sections, but the graphite tips, they still remained. Right. They were changed, shaped differently, but right. they still remained because yeah. they can't lose those they neutrons, dude. It. Yeah. Well, and, and the, the interesting thing is, is that Chernobyl kept producing power all the way up to like the year 2000, yeah. right, from the other reactors. Like, even though they built that giant vault over... over yeah, they built the sarcophagus. Yeah, we talk about we didn't talk about the sarcophagus very much, but pretty quickly after the accident, they they built a like a concrete wall, and then in the last couple of years, the new cover system. Uh, if you want to, it's an amazing engineering. Yeah, feat. it looks crazy. They they eventually built a dome. Like if you had a, it's a terrible analogy, but if you had like a football open football, yeah, that's what and it you, looks like. You put a dome. They had to build it to the side because they didn't want to, to like further away from the system. They didn't want to build it right over because it'd be dangerous. Right. But they built these two things and then they put it on like these uh, hydraulic uh, rails and then very tightly fit. The sarcophagus, the original one, was only meant to last, I think they said, 20 years. And then this new one is meant to last 100. And by 100 years? We'll see, though. Because the first one was already eroding yeah. pretty quickly. Thank you for going through this and listening to it. 
Let's do a quick couple things here. I want to talk about some nuclear points that I think are really important for us to talk about. We talked about a lot of them already. Jeff, you talked a lot about radiation sickness and and how things are portrayed. Do you think the show does a really good job of portraying this from either a thematic point or in reality? When you read criticism of the show, that's one of the things that people mention. You think that's fair? Yes, I do. The the criticisms are fair, right? Like like we're talking about with Ludmilla, like that's not a real like reaction to. It's a thematic reaction. Yeah, it's her story, but it may not right. be right scientifically sound. I do think that it's a good depiction of radiation. The thing about radiation is that it's sort of a insidious fear. It's not something that you can see. Like, you could see the explosion. The explosion only killed a couple of people, right? You can't see the radiation, and you can't see what that's doing to the human body. And like they say, some of these particles will keep firing for 10,000 years, right? That insidious nature of the danger is fear-inducing, right? So the terror that they're afraid that's going to spread is one of the biggest things. It's something that we worry about with um, with radiological disasters and, and bombs to this Absolutely. day, right? And the World Health Organization, when they were talking about Chernobyl, they said actually a lot of people got cancer because the stress that led to their immune systems dropping caused illnesses that maybe led to complications of cancer down the line. Yeah, and I mean, it's this sort of incipient fear of of what could happen to you and you don't even know it. So yeah. so it's like the guys that come across a bicycle out in a field and it's off the charts, right? It is terrifying. And it's it's that incipient silent killer and then all of a sudden you wake up one day and you have yeah. cancer or leukemia or something. Boris Sherbina, right? My favorite character mm. who is told by Valeri, you know, well, we'll be dead in five years. He died in four. Right. Stellan Skarsgård's performance I think is tremendous. And when he's told that in that moment, you just see all the emotion drain out of him, right? Because it's not something that he could fight. Yeah. Like, he could pour all the sand and boron that he wa- that he could on this reactor. He brought all of his weapons of bureaucracy to bear, but he couldn't prevent himself from getting yeah. cancer. And I, I will give uh, Craig Mason a lot of credit. He talks about how they could have gone more. They could have gone crazier when it, describing the reality of radiation sickness but they made a decision at a certain point to stop right they didn't film some scenes that could have of people's faces disappearing yeah essentially they want you to feel what the characters are feeling and they do that by showing only say half of a scene you see someone's reaction but you don't necessarily see the thing of course i i think the contagious radiation or the baby absorbing scenes are not accurate but like also in terms of the number of things that i've seen this is like my 50th episode or something of the show (laughs) This is one of the best portrayals, and it does it in a way that's that's very powerful. Megan, do you it have is. any uh, thoughts on, on kind of that side of no, everything? I mean, everything that you guys have said, but also it's they did walk that fine line really, really well because when they did show the radiation sickness, yeah. it was jarring. Mm-hmm. It was it was disgusting, but they did it in a way that we felt for the characters, mm-hmm. and we didn't ourselves we didn't picture ourselves in that situation but also this uh, podcast what do we do we talk about nuclear weapons this show doesn't show any nuclear weapons it doesn't even show a nuclear explosion but 
the history of Chernobyl, the accident, and everything involved in the response effort and what this meant for for, for Russia, I think is super connected uh, in a lot of different ways to, to this. The connections are sometimes very direct and, and I would say a little bit shallow. The characters mention things like Chernobyl reactor number four is now a nuclear bomb, Lagasov mm-hmm. says at one point. He says it'll go off hour after hour until the entire continent is dead. Now, that's certainly an exaggeration, but I think the comparison goes deeper than that. People who, who who follow Russia know that the USSR, you know, they loved three things, more or less. They loved keeping state secrets, uh, they loved preparing for war, and they loved their country. In practice, this meant that highly sensitive state industries were highly secretive, and much of the economy was designed to be dual use, meaning it was designed for both civilian, economic, peaceful purposes, but in a time of inevitable war that they expected these were also able to be mobilized in a time of war. And RBMK reactors were designed to allow plutonium removal. You make plutonium, which you use in a hydrogen bomb. And how do you make plutonium? You burn uranium in a reactor, and it turns into a couple different elements, but then eventually turns into plutonium-239, which you can use for a, a nuclear weapon. These original RBMK reactors were designed to create that plutonium. You could pull the plutonium fuel out and use it for military purposes and then replace it with some new, fresh, uranium fuel. So all of these whole systems had kind of connections to the plutonium production designs in they won over the more relatively safer reactor designs. Even though there were clearly incidences with the RBMK, admitting that there was a problem with the RBMK was like you were admitting a problem with your nuclear arsenal itself. So they didn't want to do any of those things. However, the love of country, the bitter homeland, which I think is a line, they reference a poem in one of the parts of the episode, which is about, I think it's about World War II, is reflected in the national pride that, you know, Megan, you put this in your notes, but as I'm just literally copying from you here, is that the national pride, you can feel this, you know, miles away from home, through the screen, and in the brave actions of the people involved. So all of those things, I think, combined together um, and lead to me, my my, fi- my other comparison with this is the central premise of the show, and, and this is something that Jeff was stressing a lot in our notes, when you operate a system where essentially it's a factless society, a fact-free world, we have to then put our faith in a system where they're constantly being lied to. There are examples of accidents and we're just told it's not a problem. Just don't worry about it. The experts understand what they're talking about. And eventually, though, as we learn in the show and in life, when you create these debts to the truth that like Ossoff talks about, they eventually be paid. If you want to get into Game of Thrones, all debts to the truth must be paid. And that's what the Lannisters do. But I think this concept doesn't just apply to Chernobyl. I personally think it applies to any complicated system. And one of those is deterrence. The faith that we put in this system of nuclear deterrence, that in a, a system where both sides can hit the other person with survivable second strikes, will everyone, if they're rational, will make the right choices. Intent will be communicated. People will not misunderstand things as they're happening. No one will want to cause nuclear war, so therefore we won't fight it. Therefore, peace is sustained for the future of the world. Jeff, you talk about this stuff in all your writing all the time. The number of accidents that have happened, whether it's a broken arrow, a lost weapon, an almost explosion. I'm looking over here at this desk and I see command and control. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, that's just filled with examples of, of accidents and near misses of accidental exchanges, ex- explosions in a uh, missile silo, almost accidentally bombing South North Carolina. This, the whole system is based on lies that we tell ourselves that everything's going to be fine. Yeah. So I don't know what you guys' reaction to that, if I'm going too far with that, but I, I, I think that I think deterrence has some sense of this, it could work. But I also think that overall, if we put too much faith into it, that is where you're going to go wrong, and eventually that debt will be paid. 
so you just alluded to Eric Slosher's command and control, and I and he's one of my favorite authors on this subject. He says the the problem with complicated systems is that men are in control of them, right? Mm-hmm. We don't know that deterrence will always work. We just assume that it will. It has so far. But yeah, that doesn't mean that it always work will. Until it won't work. You know, uh, we believe that nuclear weapons keep us safe, uh, that maintain international order. We don't know that they will. And in fact, just the maintenance of nuclear weapons has almost led to catastrophe several times. Just here in the United States, we've almost lost a couple of states, right? You know, we accidentally bombed Goldsboro. We had a nuclear missile blow up in Arkansas that threw the warhead 100 feet through the air, you know, and it was a it was like a four megaton nuclear device. These things are really terrifying, and they happen more often than anybody is willing to talk mm-hmm. about. Uh, Jeffrey Lewis says that the Department of Defense has na- has narrative summaries for 32 accidents involving mm-hmm. nuclear weapons between 1950 and 1980, just in the United States. But when these things happen, do we all learn about it? No. We're told that everything's fine. Right. The, you know, and, and, and what's the what's the name of the second episode? You know, re- please remain calm. Everything's fine. We know how to handle these situations. Mm-hmm. This informationless society. We're not given the opportunity to learn from our mistakes when we don't know that we've made mistakes in the first place. And I, I think one of the things that's important to note is that these kinds of accidents, um, they don't only happen in Russian systems. There's a good example of this happening in the United Kingdom in uh, with the wind scale. The first nuclear reactor, basically. It, it, it had a tremendous problem where a great amount of radiation was leaked and vented out into the air. It was either vented or explode. So they vented it and then they covered it up. Yeah. So this stuff happens in a lot of different places, and it's not meant to simply say that this is something that's only going to happen in, in a Soviet system, in a closed society. But the more you tell those lies, the greater that debt, the, the system itself no longer becomes recognizable, and we only become about, we're going to keep people safe, but at what cost? Because eventually the cost will happen, and then do the people that caused the problem get in trouble? No. But it's not the only impact and connection to nuclear weapons. I think one of the key things here that is really uh, described very well in a book by Richard Rhodes, a great book called Arsenals of Folly. I think it's the third in his uh, quadrilogy of of nuclear books. First two are about the the fission bomb and the hydrogen bomb. He describes about how Gorbachev was shook to his core by Chernobyl, and it really influenced how he saw the danger of nuclear weapons. So let me just quote from this really quickly. The Soviet deputy foreign minister commented later that Chernobyl was something like one third of the smallest nuclear explosive. And if it caused such great damage to almost half of Europe, what would happen if we used all of those arsenals that we have now in our hands? Gorbachev told a Politburo meeting in July of 1983 that, quote, global nuclear war can no longer be the continuation of rational politics as it would bring about the end of all life and therefore of all politics. And this is where Richard Rowe puts his kind of thought into this. Probably Gorbachev was thinking about Chernobyl when he said, what happened in this country is that a rigid system was created and then life was herded into it. And Gorbachev also later, according to George Shultz, a former secretary of state under Reagan, Gorbachev was very concerned about what happened if nuclear power plants were targeted, not in a nuclear war necessarily, but in a conventional war. So all of these things kind of get mixed together with the fact that at this time, Gorbachev and Reagan were starting to talk about nuclear disarmament. Mm -hmm. And Gorbachev and Reagan, what, they met in 
uh, Reykjavik in uh, I think it was October of this of that year after the yeah. the accident. Yeah, they they got together and Orbachev, according to a lot of this testimony and the the records that we have, we don't know how serious he was, but he kind of put nuclear disarmament on the table. Yeah, he instigated it without right. any. He didn't need Reagan to start the conversation. He yeah. said. We need to get rid of these. And Reagan was like, oh, maybe. I've sold the day after. This is a pretty scary thing. Yeah. So he almost wanted to do it. But to, what was the final thing? It was like the ability to test missile defense in the field and not only in the the uh, only in the lab. And that kind of was the thing that kind of stopped this. It's, you know, one of these things that was all connected. And one of the things that we learned from Hans Blix is that Gorbachev was super concerned with how Chernobyl could be used as propaganda to reduce the credibility of Gorbachev in these negotiations. And Gorbachev says at one point when he's speaking to the people, after thanking the IEA for their help, he says certain NATO countries, especially the USA, had launched a wanton anti-Soviet campaign that piled up a veritable mountain of lies, most brazen and malicious lies about Chernobyl. They're looking for a pretext that could be used to defame the USSR and its foreign policies, to lessen the impact of Soviet proposals on the termination of nuclear tests, and the elimination of nuclear weapons. It proves that even when things are going well, Soviet pride will always get in the way. All of this stuff is connected when it comes to nuclear power and nuclear weapons. I think Chernobyl is a really good case study. We've talked a lot. We've talked a lot about nuclear weapons. We've talked a lot about Chernobyl as a show about radiation and a show about nuclear energy. Anything else you always want to talk about when it comes to just a show in itself? Like I know one of your complaints, uh, Megan, is that the British actors don't do Russian accents. Is that a concern for you? I mean... Concern is very strong, and I don't have much beef with this show because I think it's really well done yeah. and it's beautiful. But this is typical Hollywood style, getting British actors to portray foreigners. It's it's not like America has a lot of Russian actors at our disposal or Russian actors that want to act in a American TV show, especially one that's about Chernobyl because, one, they're not, like I said, they're not a lot of famous Russian actors. Mm-hmm. In the American limelight, and two, because for true Russian natives, participating in this would have been potentially dangerous for them personally. Mm -hmm. They're good actors. It was well done. Just not... It was also weird because the alarms and the alerts were in Russian. Yeah. But then... All all of the written text was in Cyrillic. Yep. But just not the accents. Just not the accents. It didn't bother me as much because it really allowed me to then focus a lot more on what the actors are bringing to the roles. But I... Very evident throughout the course of this podcast. I don't speak Russian. I can't very pronounce... I can't pronounce (laughs) Russian good. Um, So it didn't necessarily... I even know what the baseline was. But I can understand. I can understand that being a a thing. Maybe they should do a a dubbed version where they have um, people that actually can do the action. They do. They do. Yeah, I was reading some articles about Russian reactions. And one of them is he is a journalist. Um, I've actually met him in Hmm. grad school. He's a journalist for a... A Moldovan-based Russian news outlet. Lots of politics there. He, his stepfather was part of the cleanup and had a dubbed version. And his first reaction was, I, I know what happened here. I don't need to see this and I don't want to see wow. this. So it was that intense for some people. But. Hmm. The score is so good in, in this show. It's not overwhelming. Very unnerving at points Mm -hmm. uh it's almost not even traditional music it's more like mood music which is the kind of music that i listen to anything else you guys want to talk about when it comes to the show itself 
I think that if you're to look at this purely as a piece of cinema, I think that we cannot mention just how good the performances were, particularly from the leads in Jared Harris and Stellan Skarsgård. And Emily Watson. Yeah, Yeah, Emily Watson. Whoever the heck the guy is that plays Gorbachev. These were really good performances. And and just like with the music, the the emotion that they bring through when Skarsgård is told that he's going to have five years to live, you can see everything drain out of him. Yeah. And he's, he goes from being this like boisterous party guy to being like comrade Valeri will give our briefing, you know, like, like he, like all of the life sort of gets sapped out of him until he has something to work for again. And I mean, like, like the miners, everybody delivers such powerful, powerful incredible performances for what it was like for these people to have to do the impossible right and face these crazy circumstances and this is for me as someone who the podcast is kind of about telling reality versus what's shown on screen but it's also about why those decisions are made and what the effects on people who look at this who may not necessarily be nuclear nerds like us and kind of what their reaction is i'm very comfortable with pretty much most of the poetic licenses that the show takes. Legossip was not at that trial. He was nowhere near that trial. He provided some information into it, but he wasn't he wasn't there. There weren't those kind of moments. But Legossip did lead a very slow but building effort of talking more and more about what the reactor design flaws and things and all of a sudden he started realizing that he was no longer getting the promotions that he needed. And this whole that scene where the KJB says what's gonna happen. Yeah. We don't know whether or not that conversation happened, but the results happened. And it led to multiple suicide attempts and eventually a successful one. But his memoirs did get out. And it was his the combination of those memoirs, which were not as well written uh, as, as they were in real life in terms of poetic uh, narrative. But they did happen. And because that combined with his suicide, the scientific community d- in many ways did kind of eventually rally around him. One of the very important things about this is that a lot of the scientific community before his death turned against Legasov because they were concerned that Legasov was going to inadvertently expose them and their lack of pointing out the reality of these particular problems. But narratively, it works very well. Yeah. Um, they turn Legasov into not a party guy until the very, very end. But it's a good contrast because you have to write a contrast between Boris and, and Legasov. And if they're both party men, sure, it reflects the reality of the Soviet system, but it doesn't have as much of a narrative you know, hit yeah. to yeah. it. So all of these different decisions that they make, even the narrative story about the radioactive absorbing child, it's very powerful and it works very well with the show. And it's the reason why the show is now currently the highest rated show on IMDb yep. or any sort Beating of- Beating out Game of Thrones and The Wire. To which I say, Gur, listen to me on my most recent podcast episode on Game of Thrones, and you'll hear my thoughts about why I actually like season eight. Wow. Unpopular opinion, but another Another three-hour podcast. We can talk about that later. I understand why people like this show, because it's amazing. It's incredibly compelling, and it's obviously really resonated with audiences. Like, all you have to do is look at Twitter right now and see that people are interested in nuclear issues, like, because of this show. 
But that's that's subjective. People like it. What does that actually mean? Let's do a formal rating here, right? For every podcast episode that we do, when we're talking about our content, we do a, a consistent one through five rating, five being the most amazing, one being something you don't actually like all that much. But we also tailor the rating system to be super critically accurate. Uh, so I've crunched the numbers, the the scram computer, I forget what they actually call it. The, what are the, the computer system in the reactor core, they have a name for it. It shot out a number for me. And uh, let's do one out of five orders of Lenin awards, the highest civilian decoration given for outstanding service to the motherland. Uh, one medal is great and all, but you may not be able to speak your mind against the lies of the state. But imagine having five of those medals. You're allowed to even publish an article in a scientific journal that tells the truth in a footnote. So it's pretty good. <laughs> yeah. I give this a five. I think I've already described it pretty well. I think the show is amazing. It's, it's a terrific show. I also give Game of Thrones a five, but that's a different story. But this is this is terrific. I want everyone to, to watch this. Megan, what did you think about this? Uh, one out of five orders of London Awards. How many would you give? I would easily give it five. It's, it's beautifully emotional. And someone who has background in Russian studies and who also loves everything to do about Russian history and Soviet history it brought me back to Mm. when I was in Russia because Russia still looks like that I love it I love Russia for that and it's very nostalgic and they got so detailed on everything that they did even the cars their license plates Mm -hmm. were accurate down to the county code basically for Kiev it was all accurate and the kitchen that Lagosov when we see him in the beginning Mm -hmm. of the show that's what yeah. the kitchens look like. Jeff, did you like this show? Why did you weasel your way onto this podcast? Screw the Order of Lenin. I give this hero <laughs> of the Soviet Union, mm. man. This wow. was, yeah, this was an incredible show. I thought it was so compelling. Um, I loved everything about it. I couldn't put it down uh, every week that came along on Mondays. I was, screw everything else that's on television. We need to watch this. It was so compelling. Even if you don't care at all about nuclear issues, this was damn good television. Dude, my, my dosimeter does not go that high. Yeah. I don't know how you possibly could <laughs> could go up that high, but thank you thank you for that. Um, so if people did enjoy this, if they did enjoy uh, our conversation, if they wanted to look for more things, there's a couple places you can look for that. Obviously, we keep talking about it. The Chernobyl Companion podcast with Greg Craig Mazin. That podcast is amazing. It's about five hours. If you happen to have a virtual reality headset if you have like a playstation vr or something along those lines if you're one of the cool kids like me there's something made by a studio called the farm 51 called chernobyl vr project i wrote about my experience watching this and, and interacting essentially with a tour of chernobyl sometimes it was a 3d camera other times they would interview people who were part of the evacuation operation. Other times they put you in the control room and they, they simulate an environment. But it's a really terrific experience. I write about this for the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientist. Finally, watch a movie that we already talked about on the show here, China Syndrome from 1973. I am going to cover this at some point on the podcast. It's a disaster movie, first and foremost, about a scram incident that possibly could lead to a meltdown. And I love the fact that in real life, Lagosov and others had talked about whether or not this movie was real and it's kind of what we do on the podcast but I don't have the responsibility of putting out a atomic fire. Megan what should people if they like this what do you recommend that they check out? Well I definitely recommend the book that we've been talking about throughout this podcast which is Midnight in Chernobyl. It was published just recently and it basically goes through the details of building up the city around the power plant, mm-hmm. the nuclear power plant, and everything thereafter. 
This is by a journalist named Adam Higginbottom. Higginbottom. I got that one. I got that one. <laughs> um, and then another uh, book is actually a book of photography that mm. was just released this year called Growth and Decay about Pripyat and the Exclusion Zone. And it's I, – I do not have it. I wish I had it. But I've seen some some teasers, and it is beautifully done, and it's just – Beautiful photography of what Chernobyl looks like now. And who, then, who wrote this one? Oh, so the author is David Balergian. I'm sorry for probably mispronouncing that. Sounds like a dragon in Game of Thrones. It yes. does. And then David McMillan. He is the famous photographer for that. And then my third and final book that I would recommend is Voices from Chernobyl, which is um, was translated into English, but the Russian author is Fetlana Alexeyevich. Jeff, what about you? What do you think we should talk about? Don't say Godzilla. Godzilla, obviously. Uh, no, I got to reiterate, Midnight at Chernobyl is one of the most engrossing reads that I've had in a long time. For those that are interested in digging a little bit more into nuclear power, CNN did a documentary a number of years ago that I'm not entirely sure how well it holds up. It was called Pandora's Promise. And it was interesting because it was from the standpoint of a bunch of environmentalists that were saying, if you want to solve climate change, we have to rely on nuclear power. And I thought that that was a particularly interesting way to come at the issue. Then the the two other things that I would recommend, one, we touched on it briefly, is Command and Control by Eric Slosher, which deals with sort of American nuclear secrets and especially another particularly devastating accident with U.S. nuclear weapons. Um, and then finally, for those of you that are looking for really, really Russian novel and video game franchise, check out the Metro series. Uh, some of the most interesting video games I've ever played that are super Soviet nuclear heavy and deal with a post-apocalyptic Soviet irradiated world with mutants and survival horror and it's equal doses, nuclear weapons, nuclear power, and sci-fi horror. And it's with a heaping dose of Soviet on top. In uh, a couple other episodes that people want to start to prepare uh, in advance, I think one of them will be already recorded by then. I'm going to do an episode on Six String Samurai, a very low-budget, almost kind of college movie about a guy who looks like Buddy Holly, and he's trying to replace the king, who literally is Elvis, in a post-apocalyptic Las Vegas area. Yeah. It's it's silly. It's weird. It don't re- it won't require me to do a three-hour episode, uh, so I'm excited to try this one. Jeff and I are also going to do an episode on the Godzilla franchise with Rachel Emond, who wrote an amazing piece recently uh, on the history of Godzilla. I believe that is published in... Inkstick. Inkstick. So we will talk all about that. I just have to watch the new Godzilla movie, and I hate the fact that you're going to make me do that. Uh, but I did recently rewatch the 1998 movie and a couple other things. So we're going to do these episodes upcoming. We got a whole bunch of others upcoming as well, but those are the ones that people can start to prepare for now. I put you all through the gauntlet here. Uh, you probably felt like you just had to put on diving outfits and go looking in the dark for water valves. So I appreciate you doing this. Let's start with Megan. Megan, do you have anything else to to plug? Maybe your Twitter handle? Where, could, where, you know, where do you work and why is this a cool place? Anything else you want people to check out? Where I work, Plowshares Fund, we have our own podcast, uh, Press the Button. I am not a voice on it, but I do help produce it. And you should be. And Are they three hours long? No. <laughs> They're yeah. around 30 minutes long. They're terrific. Um, and you can find me on Twitter at nuclear underscore gender underscore. Terrific. Thank you very much. Jeff, what are, where can people find you at? 
Yeah, sure. Uh, I am also the host of a podcast over at the Center for Arms Control called Nukes of Hazard, and you can find me on Twitter at Nuclear Wilson. Terrific. Well, thank you very much, everybody, for uh, coming on, and also, Megan, thank you for letting us host uh, this podcast episode at the Plowshares office using the same equipment. If you like the sound quality here, uh, let me know, and I'll maybe I'll try to get the same microphones from my yeah. podcast. Thanks, Tim. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Super Critical Podcast. If you have any suggestions for future episodes or you want to tell us what we got wrong, either nuke-wise or what Tim got wrong pronouncing Russian names-wise, there are a couple ways you can contact the show. The best way is uh, Twitter at Nuclear Podcast, on Facebook at facebook.com slash supercriticalpodcast. I also check an email account at supercriticalpodcast at gmail.com. Also want to suggest that you go to supercriticalpodcast.com. I've redone the website. Natasha Bajma, who she has an amazing podcast as well called Authors of Mass Destruction. In addition to the many amazing things that she does, she produced some great new graphics for my website. So those are all up now. If it looks good, it's because of her. Until next time, this has been Tim Westmeyer. And Megan. And Jeff. And remember, if it's pop culture and radioactive, we are bound to get super critical about it. Have a good one. What would that be in Russian? Oy vey. <laughs> <laughs>